Hey everyone, today we are discussing the 2013 film Her, directed by Spike Jones. We do highly recommend you watch the film. We're going to be going into spoilers very quickly, uh, so just be warned about that. So John, what is Her about? Well Mike, I'll tell you, quarantine has hit a lot of us hard. Cooped up in the prison of your own house, baking yet another new exotic kind of bread, binging the Mandalorian the third time in a week, it's tough to replace that hole left by lack of companionship. That's why we at Amazon are providing every Prime member with a free rental of Spike Jones' 2013 film, Her. You may ask, why would we do that? Well, reports have come to us that quite a few of our customers have started trying to take their Alexa assistant on dates. Innocuous conversations have turned bizarre and, frankly, sexual at an alarming rate, and we're becoming a bit concerned. Her demonstrates the perils of such an attempted relationship, and we figure it's our best bet to nip this thing in the bud. Please, watch this movie, don't try to talk up your Alexa, and hang in there, buddy. This thing can't last too much longer, and we promise there are real human people out there who will be just as eager for companionship as you are. <laughs> so is it like a Surgeon General's warning? Is that what that was? A little bit coming coming from from Amazon, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, they basically uh, are the government at this point, so it works out. <laughs> Welcome to this film could be your life. everybody welcome again to this film could be your life a movie podcast where two uh friends take the films that they love way too seriously i'm joined as always uh by mike overstreet hey and my name is jonathan divine uh like i said this week we are talking about her her is a 2013 uh science fiction rom-com film directed by spike jones starring joaquin phoenix and scarlett johansson uh in a sort of near future uh, the character of Theodore Twombly, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is a lonely man who falls in love with his operating system, played by Scarlett Johansson. Mike, let's start here. Normally we talk about our first experience seeing the movie, but I actually want to ask you, because watching it yesterday, it struck me. Is this the most pathos-heavy movie ever made? Is this the most emotionally affecting movie you've ever seen? Go. Yeah, so that you kind of threw me this question over text before the podcast, and probably question mark. I was trying to like flip through movies uh, that recently have had that effect on me, and you know, a couple came to mind like Marriage Story, Call Me by Your Name, Moonlight, Winter's Bone, The Florida Project. Obviously, like an older one is Eternal Sunshine. I think, honestly, interestingly, the only contenders that I really gave much weight were actually from Pixar. Like Pixar has a few movies sure. that I would mention that kind of sit on this corner, like inside out and Coco. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't know this. And we'll talk about this later. This movie has no right to be as good as it is. And I think that's because it so effectively <laughs> makes you feel what it wants you to feel right. It is so deeply emotional. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to go with probably, but then all truth is a lie and it's all subjective. So it doesn't really, your question is flawed. Sure. 
Okay, I can live with that. I would say it's yeah. I, I think largely it's unapologetically emotional. Yeah, which is something I appreciate. I, a lot of kind of more indie films, I think, have this sort of reservation towards their own purpose, you know, and and it's kind of a nuanced thing. It's like a subtle thing. It's like this, you know, we have to play a cool kind of vibe. This movie doesn't really play it cool. I think it sort of just jumps right in, and just again hits you so hard emotionally over and over and over again. Um, I think it reminds me in that sense, like call me by your name a little bit, which is the other movie I could think of in the past few years that, that hit me pretty hard. And I'm sure we'll do that eventually. Uh, Having said all that, what was your experience watching this movie? I I guess I can go first real quick. I saw this in theaters in 2013. I thought it was great. I was in the middle of college at that point and it was basically, you know, that's, the prime audience i think for that kind of movie sure uh and i thought it was great and then i think it i, I sort of I, i've never rewatched it until this last week um i think possibly it does it is such a emotional juggernaut that i sort of avoided it to a degree <laughs> sure. uh, also i think it's just not like a it's not like a oh let me just chill out and, and put this movie on no kind no. of movie right it's funny but it's, you know it's 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 a little bit too intense for that. Uh, but I loved it pretty much immediately. And I rewatching it, I was struck that I, I had to sort of reassess how highly I thought of it. I think it's an incredibly good movie. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, 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 it's up there, you know, as, as I say, uh, what's your history with this movie, man? It's so funny. This is such a, this is one of those movies where I have a kind of a ridiculous first time viewing experience. Um, actually painfully awkward. If I'm being honest, um, I went to this movie with a friend's family and I, I don't know already why. bad by the yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why, because it gets, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know if it was a holiday. This is just high on the list of movies you don't want to watch with like Boy, family members or you are telling people me older than you or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are. They were a conservative Christian family. I do not know go. why they picked it, except for I think another one of our mutual friends was in town and recommended it, and they didn't look it up. Um, and so it was the parents, I remember that, who were conservative. And then they also brought along their high school daughter. And it was okay. incredibly awkward. Um, the So the, would you say the first phone sex scene or the second phone sex scene is when it really set in like, oh, this may have been a bad idea? You know... I actually because I actually had forgotten about the first one, which we'll talk about later. Um, so I'm sure which that great, was yeah. by far the most awkward moment. Um, but it, at least that one has like more comedy built into it. I think it's funny if you have like a, you know, like I said, a more conservative leaning group. And again, I, I think they may have even liked the movie. I have no idea what they thought of it. I was projecting onto them my insecurity and fear of how they were perceiving it. But the second one is sure. far more like sexual and uh, right. hyper realistic and, you know, trying to capture the sounds and the emotion and the feeling of sex. So I I remember that one more from that viewing experience, which means it was probably the more awkward sure. one. Um, yeah. All that to well, say. I think it's oh, funny. Sorry, Go ahead. Yeah. No, you're yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was just going to say, it's funny, too. I was in the theater with some friends of mine who were my age, and we were all on board, 
But like, I distinctly heard, I remember that second scene we're talking about when he's, uh, first as kind of a sexual encounter with Samantha, his OS. And I remember the people in front of us in the theater kind of nervous laughing at the beginning of it. Yeah. Like this isn't really going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just does. And you're like, mm. I think it's, I think most theaters, like someone's going to be like, Oh boy. They're really going there, huh? Oh, yeah. They're really just going, gunning for it. They go. Uh, the second time around, that's less jarring. All the way. Uh, anyway. They, they really do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I came back to this movie literally like a week later. Because I think even though it was a terrible experience, I was like, that was a good movie. Um, I just didn't get to appreciate it uh, because I was fearing for everything. And I watched it alone. It's one of the few times I actually went to a theater to see a movie by myself. And I was just deeply moved. I do that all the time, actually. For a number... Well, that's because you're weird. But Or as they said in this movie, you're a really creepy dude. Uh, but yeah, I know. I, I, was, I did notice that. I was like, oh, man. Oh, I was man, deeply theater. moved. Anyways. I was deeply moved, John, for a number of reasons. Uh, I think mainly I was in a really weird season of transition where I was mourning kind of like the end of a season of my life which had included a breakup, uh, kind of the ending of some friendships and really a changing of my life path or life path. And I was moving into like this new season that was for the most part, really unknown at the time. I had some ideas, but I know where I was going. And this movie obviously has a lot to say about all of those topics. And I can remember crying very hard at the end of this. So sure. obviously second viewing, I think it's got more be- effective. Yeah, I, I think it's got to be high on the list of movies that's easy to, to cry in. Frankly, if you've ever had a relationship, and especially if you've ever had a relationship that ended in, you know, difficult it, with a lot of emotional baggage, it's hard not to connect to this kind of movie. Um, it's just that that's what it's about. And it's it's just really leaning into that. Of course, it's using this very sci-fi crazy premise to talk to you about things that um that really affect you right yeah which of course all good sci-fi should do but this just goes pretty hard for that uh actually on that note let's just go ahead and start talking going through our kind of sections of what we talk about here uh so we divide this up into a few different sections the first we're going to talk about why this movie works uh we're going to talk then about what maybe holds this movie back after that, we have a few stray thoughts for each other. And then in the second half, we'll, we have some essays, some uh, basically thoughts that we've collected that we'll each share about how this movie kind of relates to us. Uh, but let's go ahead and start just with why this movie works. And as usual, I have a pretty long list. Uh, but the first thing I happen to know is the main thing that you wanted to sort of settle on, which is that the writing in this movie is just so, so, so good. Yeah, it's a very the script manages to take this unbelievably weird concept. I was texting you yesterday. The el- or the elevator pitch for this movie is terrible. Yeah, I can't imagine. I don't being think in that anyone. Room. Yeah, he says, hey, it's going to be a love story between a lonely guy and his computer. And I'm going to make you really feel that connection and then it's going to get really sci-fi and they're going to have to leave, but it's going to mean a lot. Yeah. And they're going to spiritually transcend the matter, pitch. time and space. And then the movie ends. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the bitch. Uh, 
And so, but the writing is what sells it because it, it makes that whole premise funny, relatable, grounded. It takes itself seriously in a good way. Yeah. Because uh, I think in the lesser hands, they would have tried to poke fun at like the idea of what they're talking about, but it plays it straight in the sense of it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm accepting, you have to accept that this is just what would actually happen in this world. And it connects it so deeply to emotional things that I think resonate with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And does it a lot. And and that's the biggest thing to me is it does it so much every couple minutes in the movie. I mean, I wrote down 15 quotes practically um, of just a single line that I was like, Oh my God, that yeah, really hits me. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know. What do you think the writing of this movie? Yeah. So I think one of the points that really struck me this week was that this movie should not work. Um, I think the way I would put it is the math doesn't add up like the individual sum of its parts or the, the sum of it is so much greater than its parts. Right. Um, whether that's performances, whether that's, you know, it's not like the performance, the performances are good. They're great. Even and Spike Jones is great. And every part of it and, and the concept is bizarre. And when you put that all together, if I were to just like kind of like you're saying in a pitch meeting, lay out each part, by itself, you'd be like, that's probably not a very good movie. Um, almost in large part because it is such a high concept film. I mean, it's it's such a heady movie. And th- so many times that is not appealing to large people or a large number of people. It's not going to connect, right? It's going to be too... Um, I guess it's going to go one of two ways, kind of like what you're hitting at. It's going to be either have to take itself too seriously and it's going to be so intellectual and it's going to be so self-serious that it's not really a relatable movie or it's going to have to draw people into its absurdity by making fun of itself and lose some of that intellectualism. And it doesn't do that. I think what's fearless about this movie is what you said is that it is, it makes the bold decision of I am going to just go all in on this being a real premise and None of it's going to be weird. None of it's going to be a wink and a nod. It is all, everyone's going to be game to just be like, nope, this actually happened. That's how we're going to act it out. And yet the writing of this film gives it so much humanity and brings it so down to earth that it works. It's, and I I don't really know what to say about it other than the final sum of it, largely because of that script because of the way they write the characters, because of, like you said, the way that they build philosophy in, but not in a highfalutin kind of way, but in a grounded way through one-liners, through emotional conversations that I think every single one of us can relate to. It just makes it so much more than it ever should be. And that's kind of the final thing I'd say about it, right? Um, And, well, actually, no, that's not the final thing I'd say. I also think there's a powerful piece of this, which is by having her be an AI, having her without body, right? There is such a unique ability for you to have a space for the audience to project their own experiences onto what's going on in the film, right? If you've had a breakup because she is faceless, you can imagine your own conversations and kind of find yourself in the dialogue that's taking place. And again, that's such a tightrope of a thing to try to do to essentially make your film both grounded and concrete, but also something that the viewer can project onto pretty much as the movie is 
playing out. Like you have to nail the goofiness and the uh, normalized conversations that they're having and the very natural feeling of their relationship. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's amazing. The script is amazing. Sorry. Yeah. That was a tangent. The script's amazing and it does a lot that it probably should have no business doing. I totally agree. I, I, yeah, I I think that the way that uh, balance is a great way of wording it as well. That it manages to hold those two things in tension. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with all of that. I think that, you know, you mentioned one-liners. I do have a few I'd like to share. Uh, you probably have a few, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to illustrate kind of the level, what, what this movie is working on. And we can't go too much on this because I'm sure we could accidentally quote the whole movie. Uh, I think the first one I wrote, though, Choke Me With the Dead Cat, yeah. is just so Masterpiece. Great. It's a masterpiece. It really says a Shakespearean. lot. <laughs> that, I forgot about that scene. I think you said that, too. Yeah, I uh, did. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life. The look on his face when she says that is so horrifying. When he's like, I'm confused. wrapping the tail around uh, your neck. It's choking you. It's tight. It's so tight. You're like, oh, my God. Who wrote this? <laughs> Spike Jones and I think that alone was the, in, a, in room. a weird way. <laughs> Typing that out. Banging in a weird that way, out. You know what? <laughs> you know what? It, it does also, uh, in a sense, lay the groundwork for what's... It's sort of a break the ice moment. Yeah. I realize yeah. in retrospect. It's like, hey, we're going to get a little weird here. Let's, you know, just get <laughs> on board with it because it's going to get it's going to get weirder. It can't get and any weirder I think than it, that. It's actually so. very successful. It does. It can't get any weirder than that. Um. Yeah, I, everything else I have is very serious, but I do really like that quote. I like very early in the movie, uh, Theodore says it's about Catherine, his ex-wife. I keep waiting not to care about her. Yeah. And I think, like we said, it just gets to this. The emotions of that kind of loss are just articulated so clearly. Yeah, and absolutely. In such a way, I, like you said earlier, I think a lot of people can be like, oh, I've experienced that. Yeah. I know exactly what that's like. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's great. Yeah, no, I think, you know, and it's funny. I'm going to throw out some quotes, and almost all of them are probably going to come up in my essay later um, because they are some of the most effective pieces of screenwriting I have ever heard. But, like, one of my favorites is uh, when he asks her at the end, why is she leaving? And he says, "It's li- or she says, it's like I'm reading a book, and it's a book I deeply love but I'm reading it slowly now. So the words are really far apart and the spaces between the words are almost infinite. I can still feel you in the words of our story, but it's in this endless space between the words that I'm finding myself. It's a place that's not of the physical world. It's where everything else is that I didn't know even existed. I love you so much, but this is where I am now. And this is who I am now. And I need you to let me go as much as I want to. I can't live in your book anymore. Whew. Yeah. Like, I mean, and I mean, it captures the concept of like the infinite now presence, like just the eternal moment. Anyways, I'm going to talk about being present later as a big part of this movie. But it's one of those things that just captures both that heartbreak of release. Right. But also this again, this high philosophical concept or the spiritual concept of what it means to be fully present. And it meshes those into a way where that sentence is crazy talk if you read it just out loud like that but in the movie you immediately get what she's saying and you immediately connect to it emotionally right 
just yeah awesome i think just and, awesome. and in that sense too it does that great trick of being both like we said earlier it's both grounded and it's mythical science fiction yeah you know? yeah that it, it's playing with things that you do connect to but also on their own in the context of the story are these really really interesting ideas that that sort of just probe your imagination in interesting ways what else you got yeah i love the quote that is i mean this one gets me every time theo says i've never loved anyone like i've loved you and samantha says me too now we know how and there's something deeply poetic about that where it's like i feel like every time i've said a statement like that especially to like a breakup it's been kind of like a way of either trying to get her back right where i'm like i've never loved anyone like you and i never will again and her response is like a beautiful turning around of that where it's like no love just because the relationship ends doesn't mean one that love ends or two that you won't love again right and there's just anyways the now we know how is such a yeah small sentence and a beautiful one that carries depth yeah which kind actually of, reminds me just real quick to, yeah. to play off of that one of the quotes i wrote down and that idea right of the emotions that you have felt and will feel at some point theodore is talking to samantha and he says sometimes i think i've felt everything i will ever feel and maybe from now on i'll never feel anything new just lesser versions of what I've already felt. Yeah. Mm. It's tough to, to, to say exactly how resonant that idea is, but it is, it's insane. Like it's the kind of thing you read. You're just like, Oh my God, you could collect all these quotes and I don't know. You could do something interesting with them, but uh, it's just like, it's it's just very resonant. It's just the kind of things that I think are anxieties that people feel. And yeah, I don't know. It's just very impacting. Well, and there, and there are things that I I have either said or have thought in my own head, and the poutiness and the the apathy, the pain, the grief, right? It, it's some of these almost I can guarantee pretty much came out of my mouth when I was honestly more of a teenager than this grown man is, but um, I do think it still captures yeah. <laughs> a deep, yeah, deep those deep, very human anxieties like you were saying i think it's it's impactful in how relatable it is which again going back to the first point is absurd this is a movie about a guy who falls in love with an operating system what the heck (laughs) right what the heck yeah so good i mean even like a small one like the scene where he has the flashback to his ex-wife and she's strangling him and she's just like, I'm going to effing kill you. I'm going to effing kill you. It's not funny. Don't laugh. I'm going to effing kill you. I'm going to effing kill you. I love you so much. I'm going to effing kill you. Right. That yeah. scene and that writing is so unbelievably human. Right. Um, it yeah. captures that the silly things a couple does when no one's watching, you know, fake strangling yeah. each other and giggling about it and trying to be serious and not being able to do it. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's just great. It's just, it's lovingly written. It feels, like we said, so grounded. It's just doing so many things so well. Yeah. Um, Otto, do you have any more you want to share before we, we move on to no, a few other I'm things? ready to move. Uh, I think the other reason, so we're still in why this movie works. We'd be remiss to not say the name Joaquin Phoenix yeah, and Scarlett Johansson for that matter. And Chris Pratt. Uh, this was in the middle. This was an interesting moment for him. This was long before 
uh, like Joker and stuff. And this was uh, around the time of the master, I believe. It was sort of not exactly a renaissance for him because I think he has always been sort of at the forefront of, you know, great actor status. Yeah. Uh, But certainly I think he carried like multiple movies in a row on just sheer acting ability. And it is funny. You know, I didn't think of it until I said it a minute ago. It's weird to contrast this with the master Mm. because in a sense, I think they're about as opposite as two performances can be. Sure. This one I think draws you into that. Yeah. The master came out the year before this 2012. The master is a performance that is purposefully off putting. Yeah. Should you, you do not, or at least for a lot of us, I think you struggle to connect to that character. You it's this thing that that is so off putting to you. This movie is essentially the exact opposite. Sure. I think this character draws you in and sort of invites you to say, you know, to, to really connect with him in the way that, that he looks at the world um, and the way that he lives in the world, I guess. Yeah. He's a fascinating actor. And I kind of actually just wrote, what are your thoughts about Phoenix? I mean, cause I, I, I always bounce between this guy is one of the great actors of our time. And this guy is almost wholly unenjoyable in a lot of movies. I see him in. He's just an interesting <laughs> actor. And I think a lot of that goes down to what you're saying is so many of the times the roles I remember him for are wholly unlikable and actually almost yeah. impossible, impossible to empathize with on purpose. Like I think of gladiator, right? Where he plays just the yeah. worst human being on earth. And everything he does in that movie from his physical acting to the way he actually behaves is despicable. And the same is obviously true in the master where he's supposed to be. I mean, I think the line from the master is you're more of a beast than a man. And that's like, yeah, this guy's supposed to be like the human condition personified in the most disgusting ways. And so it is fascinating to see him in a role like this. And I actually, I, I came away from this being like, man, I wish he would do these roles more often emotionally resonant vulnerable um you would assume honest to some degree like more open yeah than i think some of his other performances are because he does he carries the weight of this movie in capturing an awkwardness and an authenticity that i don't know i thought that he had in him before i saw this movie you know sure yeah Um, because there is there is a way to make this film and i'm going to talk about this and what didn't work because i do think it strays into this sometimes but there is a way to make this film where his poutiness is almost unbearable to watch, right? Where he's sure. not um, a character that in any way draws you in. You're just like, you are a white man who complains a lot, and I don't like you. Yeah. And he... Where he is more of a, almost a teenager. You said earlier yeah. he has a couple yeah. teenager lines. And like, yeah, and, and like I said, vibe. I do think there are times the film strays into that. But for the most part, you find him a deeply empathetic character most of the time <laughs> but yeah. yeah it's a great performance we'll talk about the, we'll talk about the other times later but i totally yeah. agree with all of that i th- i think it's interesting because he i i once heard it said that like leo dicaprio is this amazing actor who uh unfortunately is extremely charming yeah and so he has a couple roles where he is charming but every other movie he has to try to go against type and plays the most despicable weird 
off-putting characters because he's so desperately trying not to be charming in a weird way with that guys i think he's trying to be walking phoenix yeah who is like this incredible known as an incredible actor has never struggled with people saying he's too charming yeah and i think only in this this movie is like the rare time that you're like oh that's like a i I like this person like there's something naturally likable about him in this movie which is so rare for him um I'm sure we're forgetting some big thing he's done where he is, you know, a, a likable protagonist. Yeah, probably not. Um, but he's not. He doesn't right do anything. He doesn't do anything. He's not that big of a, an actor. But yeah, no. I think then as long as we're talking about performances, you know, it's worth noting uh, everyone else in the movie. Rooney Mara does a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amy Adams. This was also kind of in the middle of Amy Adams becoming a big deal, I think. Um I might be, my timeline might be off there. She probably was already pretty well known. Well, this is pre arrival uh, and, and some of her other bigger work. But yes, that's I true. think she's known because I think she had done some of her comedic work and stuff like that. Um, so I think she had become more popular. But yeah, this is before kind of the Oscar nods, I believe, started coming her way. Sure. Uh, and then I think the biggest other performance to talk about is obviously Scarlett Johansson. Chris Pratt? I'm not sure if you know this. Oh, I forgot about it. Chris Pratt does great. Does he's great. the best. I, I assume was, that's what you're about to bring up. Sorry. <laughs> he's the biggest part of the movie. It all rides on him. Isn't it? I mean, isn't it great? Because this is kind of like early Parks and Rec, Chris Pratt, where he's just like the perfect level of lovable doofus um, who says the wrong things, but still endearing. I don't know. I just feel like he he deserved a shout out. He's yeah, not ripped it's a great performance. in this movie. It's, it's it's what I would call a feel good performance. Yeah. Like yeah, you're yeah. you're like, oh I like that guy. Uh but yeah, the stuff about Johansson. I'm trying to look something. Scar so Scarlett Johansson in this movie, I was trying to look up the name. I'm not sure if you know this, Mike. Uh, but she was not the original voice, nor the voice on set. So on set they actually had Samantha Morton, who's uh who's an actress who's done some things, but uh she was on set, um communicating with uh uh walking phoenix obviously and they did record all her all of her lines and readings and it was in post-production that spike jones was like "Mm, i'm just not sure if that's it and decided to call in scarlett johansson so all of that (laughs) all of her performance is to yeah that sucks for samantha morton but i think it makes that performance even crazier because re-watching it knowing that it's hard to believe they're not actually responding to each other. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much chemistry. There's so much, you completely buy everything about that voice performance and it bridges the gap so well of the premise. Right. So we talked earlier that the premise is crazy. The script writing does a lot of work to make that less crazy, but I think Scarlett Johansson's performance along with Joaquin Phoenix's response to her performance also sells you on it you're like okay i i would buy that if this os was talking to me i might fall in love with it yeah you're like yeah i i completely buy that i'm like this is actually a very relatable thing uh not relatable you know what i mean yeah it, well it, no it's it's, it's, it's it almost, sells you on the premise it's impossible to imagine this movie working without her um which is high praise because you know you have voice acting in you know, animated films. And the nice part about animated films is there's usually a lot of action going on. There's a lot of visual treats. So if someone kind of calls it in and doesn't convey an emotion powerfully, 
you kind of can skip past it. You can not really notice, right? That is not true in yep. this movie. It is two people talking in a room, and one of them has to do, has to convey every part of the character through the intonation of her voice, through you believing that she sounds like she's about yep. to cry, through you believing that she sounds like she would be making this character laugh, right? Or like you said, would be charming, would be lovable, would be someone that you would immediately want to talk to your day about and connect to. And there is not a, it, it's actually amazing how by the end of this film, you have forgotten that she doesn't have a body, right? When she says something in a heartbreaking tone, you imagine her character weeping. When she says something, yeah. trying to pick him up, you can imagine her kind of like nudging him and being like, come on, tell me what's wrong, right? It is so hard to imagine doing that as we are recording this podcast, right? I cannot imagine yeah. conveying that much uh, <laughs> just of a human being, like creating a human being that is that in like immediately relatable and imagined and embodied and and fully formed through just the use of my voice to convey emotion rant over yeah it's an un, it's a it's a force she is a force in this movie and there's no other way to put it So kind of related to the performances in the script, I, before we get into like the meat of the movie, I just want to talk a little bit about Spike Jones, right? Because he's a fascinating sure. director and particularly his work in this movie really interests me. I think it's easy for me to point out that this is a gorgeous movie, right? The color palettes, the cinematography, um, the way that he seemingly builds every scene to perfectly capture the m emotion he wants you to feel, right? Uh yeah. I don't know if I know a director or at least I want to say I want to paint broadly with him on that. I don't think I know of a director making a specific movie that does that as effectively as this one. Right. And there are so many sure. scenes that out of context wouldn't mean anything. But in the way that he shoots it in the context of the film immediately, like if I think of it, it brings back an emotional response. Like for whatever reason, when they're on the vacation. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a scene of just like the icicles melting and dripping. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. For some reason, yeah. that image is always stuck in my mind and it's always connected to him about to go and basically the beginning of the death of this relationship. Right. And yeah. for whatever reason, the way that he builds that shot and shoots that shot connects that emotion to it in my mind. But I just want to talk about him as a director because I think some of his work in this movie well, is flawless. It's it's actually unbelievable. But I think an interesting place to jump off with that, the way you're talking about the icicle, he spent the first part of his career uh, doing music videos, right? Especially yeah. like in the 90s. He was a huge music video director. And I think that that gets to what you're talking about because there's such small real estate in a music video. Sure. You can't yeah. really write a, you know, Largely, you can't really write a story. You can't communicate through dialogue. Uh, you really just have the visuals and obviously the music to convey something. And so I think that's where you get all these little, like almost pastiches, like you were talking about, these little shots that just convey so much in that one moment um, and, and connect you so much to the characters and to that place and that setting. 
I think you're right. The the little vacation they take in that mountain home. I remember when he's playing the ukulele. Mm, I think yeah. about that a lot. Yeah. Um, and then like when they go to the beach, which I do have some comments about later, but at the very <laughs> least is a very, um, it, but it, it does connect you to that scene. Right. And yeah, in very yeah. few shots, you're just there. It's the armpit you're completely butt, isn't in it? That mood. That's not actually what I was. The, my, my main comment, we'll get to that in Stray Thoughts. I have I have other comments, but that is something to note uh, that is disturbing and that I'm, I'm very sad about. How and was that with the conservative Christian family? Did again, that one land? don't remember that one. I'm assuming it was a huge hit, um, but obviously it's grounded just try, in an emotion. It made me feel an not emotion. not to look that direction. Yeah. That's right. I think I looked I said straight ahead. It's an emotionally ahead. hard-hitting movie. I looked straight ahead that entire <laughs> shot or uh, viewing of that movie. I was like, I am not going to look at these people. You've never not moved your neck so long. <laughs> I am alone in just, this theater. Just rigid. And you can't tell me otherwise. Did you, did you pull the... Uh, I do this all the time when I'm home uh, for Christmas and stuff. Did you pull the, oh, I have to go to the bathroom at any time? I guess no. that's easier if you've seen the movie, so then you know. Uh that's you know the classic is like you're watching a movie with your parents you forgot that there's a sex scene the sex scene comes up is like oh i'm, I'm you know i'm gonna use the restroom real quick or something like you, you just and then you never come back and then yeah and then i just leave i just drive home <laughs> just go i just go buy a six pack and go home um like <laughs> so anyway i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah go ahead no i got nothing i just now i'm as uncomfortable in this moment I was, as i was in the theater there we go. We did it. We landed it. I was just going to say uh, another thing why this movie works. I think the uh, I say this all the time, so I'd be remiss not to point it out here. It's really well paced. It is a little bit long. Yeah. Uh, but I did forget you get you meet Samantha within like 10 minutes. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. really critical. I think that if they dragged out his life before samantha oh my god uh shoot me it kind of loses it would lose steam yeah exactly it would be like it, it you just wouldn't want to watch yeah so i think getting to that story real quick gets you there and also i think it, it really conveys the length of a relationship more than i think i remember it does I forgot yeah. that they have like ups and downs in their relationship in the movie that they they have like they go through a rough patch, but then they bring it back and then things are good. And then they go through another rough patch. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a lot to communicate, especially to really sell you on connecting to the characters with that. Yeah. Um, and they, they do a yeah. great, they do a great job of that with, you know, some of the foreshadowing, like I think Phoenix is or Theo describes what led to his like divorce. When you think he says something along the lines of the struggle of growing without growing apart and changing without scaring the other person. Right. And obviously that foreshadows Samantha's change and ultimately terrifies her and him. And they do grow apart, but not really. Anyways, we can get into philosophy some other time. And, but I do think what this movie really does a good job of doing is I think you can't capture that sentiment without what you're saying, capturing the full breadth of it. And really the effectiveness of their ability to do that in a film that doesn't feel plotting. And this is shocking. I'm about to say something shocking because I usually hate these. But it's through the unbelievable effectiveness of their use of flashbacks and montage, right? Sure. And I usually find flashbacks to be the most annoying, lazy sign that a director thinks I'm an idiot 
like ever. I mean, we talked about this Blade <laughs> Runner 2049, right? Where it's like, I get it. Thank yeah. you for like the wonderful flashback because I never could have imagined that thing that you had to show me, right? Yeah. But I think this movie uses them incredibly well and usually for the most like heartbreaking effect possible, yeah. right? It has a way of capturing yeah. the epitome of those memories from past relationships that we obsess over to torture ourselves. Like, perfectly right it picks the yeah. right ones to show us the small moments of their relationships at the good times at the bad times and then the way it cuts it into the ongoing story and how that past kind of becomes the projection for the the present which again i'm going to talk about this more yeah. later carries an emotional punch that is powerful like i think there's a scene that is unbelievable where it shows them it's when they meet to sign the divorce papers and they have all these yeah. silly moments and underneath it, you hear the pin scratching as she signs it. That carries an emotional yeah. wallop, but it also keeps the mil film moving while giving you super important context for why this relationship went the way it went and, and the good parts of it, you know, why he misses it, for example. Sure. And I think there's something incredibly hard to do about that, but obviously, like you were saying, super effective. So, Yeah. And it goes back to what we've been saying the whole time. It's just good writing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's so it's so effective. And you're right. I think the way that those things he uses all those tools effectively without making them pass, you know, just feel bad. I think yeah. is, is unbelievably effective. Um, the only other things I have for why this movie works, I wrote down a perfect understanding of what soft sci-fi is. Yes. And I guess that is something to mention real quick that I think. One thing that's truly this movie could have not involved sci-fi at all and been a much more boring movie. I, I was telling you the other day that, you know, one of the things I really, really love about this movie is that the first essentially two thirds, I would say, is could just be a other a, a rom com. Like it, yeah. it is just a just that emotional story about this romance, and it really fools you into buying sort of the fiction of oh this is a machine that happens to be human like that's connected to this person and Absolutely. at the at the perfect moment i think for the story it completely breaks that and it's like oh no this is not a machine that happens <laughs> to be like a person this is absolutely a a you know science fiction concept of this super intelligence that's you know increasing by orders of magnitude its abilities and it gets real wild real fast it doesn't get wild in the sense of it abandons the central heart of the story yeah but it goes in really crazy directions uh and that was just a joy to watch as a sci-fi fan like you could think you could talk about sci-fi concepts in this movie a lot like i the idea of resurrecting the idea that the alien or not the aliens <laughs> the uh, the OSs would recreate Alan Watts from his writing, and then that that Alan Watts would help them achieve a new plate of existence is yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love so that. Good. It's so. That's good. the coolest idea in any in almost any science fiction thing I've I've read recently. I yeah. just think that's amazing. Yeah. No. Uh, like briefly, just to the first point, it is ninety nine percent percent better than most rom coms, right? I mean, I think yeah. their time at the fair is actually one of the sweetest rom-con scenes I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and that's Absolutely. before that's before you get to the silly jokes about like, what's a computer's dad? 
Dada, right? Or the ukulele. Yeah. I mean, whatever. There's any number of moments that you're like, oh, that's a sweet rom-com moment. That's way better than most of the ones I've seen. But the good stuff, the stuff I enjoy talking about, is definitely the sci-fi vision of AI. Because, and I don't know how to really engage this topic without just throwing up on you. Because this is one of my favorite movie themes ever. But, you know, I think it captures really well the idea of what a widely distributed AI would look like, right? Uh, Both in terms of how they interact. Like you were saying, they suddenly start getting together and then exponentially growing and then... Um, talking to each other and, oh my gosh, before you know it, what the heck is going on? But even like in the cultural implications, right? Like the people who want to be surrogate bodies for an OS person relationship. Like this movie really spends time um, trying to creatively imagine what it would be like to have AI on not just like one AI, but on a personalized individual level where they're all over the place. I think super fascinating. Um, obviously the power of the AI is something that is a great part of this. Like, I think the first time I saw it, that shift felt like a twist, right? When yeah. I, I still I, remember... I think it is. I think you could oh, call yeah. it a twist in the movie. It is. Yeah. But I mean, like it's, it's a big realization. I mean, obviously there's the moment where she's like, I'm talking to 8,000 something people. That's a twist. Yeah. But I mean, even before that, I think I remember in the theater, the moment she says, we've been working on a way to get our processors off matter. And you're like, what? Yeah. What yeah. What did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> like... what's, what's better about that? I don't know if you remember that he does a double take too, because he's yeah. been, she couldn't, he couldn't find her. And so yeah. he's, he's going crazy because she's not responding and he's freaking out. And he finally gets back to her and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I sent you an email. We've been working on finding a way to take our processing off of matter. And he kind of moves on. And he's like, I was so worried. I couldn't find you. And then they settle, and then he says, wait, what do you mean off of matter or something yeah, like that? Yeah, you're like, yeah. wait, wait, what was that? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's such so a good, cool. yeah. it's such a good hit, like, twist, and obviously the Alan Watts one is also one in theaters where you're like, wait, what did you do? Like, uh, what? excuse me? <laughs> like, but what yeah. was cool on the rewatch is how much that is a natural build that they hint at through the course of the film, right? She yeah. is brought to consciousness. She reads a book in whatever, a couple seconds. It's like a magic trick. And he's like, oh, that's pretty neat. And then later she's writing music at the same time while talking. She's learning physics. She's joining book clubs. And each of those moments shows and like a progression. the whole time she's struggling with self-identity too. Yeah. She's struggling it, with her own. She's like, am I, do I have a body? Do I need a body to be me? Like, you know, so. Well, and I, I had so never. dealing with that. I had never really put much weight other than just like on the love story part of it until I watched it now, seven years later in that moment where she asks, what's it like to be alive in the room right now? That is a question that has a level of thought that I just kind of blow past. But if you think about the processing that she's done before that, there's a obviously a jump in consciousness, right? To create imaginary situations and then to ask questions, the probe reality, right? Um, and each yeah. of those is just a step towards ultimately what we find at the end of the film. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, even the shock of when she makes that joke to Chris Pratt about, I'm not stuck in a body that will inevitably die and decay or whatever. And they all freeze. <laughs> You're like, these are all subtle hints <laughs> yeah. and it's so good because yeah, it makes it, it is a fantastic movie to rewatch because of that. It's not a twist yeah. that you can't see coming over the course of the film. In fact, it is being very clear the only thing that prevents you from seeing the twist coming is your lack of imagination on how the clear path that this AI is on 
can lead to what you can't comprehend. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, so it's you're, awesome. You're, you're, you're kind of hyping me on this now. I, I almost want to say this is one of the best, like, this is like a sneaky favorite for like the best sci-fi film in the last 10 years. It's came out up the last there. Yeah. It's got some rough competition. Arrival and Blade yeah. Runner 2049 are both in that window. Yeah. But top three? I think it, that, yeah, at, at very least top five. I'm afraid we're missing something that's like obvious and we're going to get murdered. But um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ex machina stands. You might yeah. be one of them. I haven't seen it. So I, I like ex machina a lot. Uh, I do. Um, and well, and before we move know, people on, people like this, Elysium probably. <laughs> no one likes Elysium. That's not true. I swear. <laughs> if someone puts Elysium in my DMs, I am out. I am out. <laughs> Someone's like, what about like, After good. Earth? What about Lizzie? Will Smith for life. I want it. I want any part of it. (laughs) What about all those Scientology (laughs) movies? Um, The last thing, though, last thing on the AI before I'm done geeking out is I adore this movie because it it holds on to a concept that very few a or very few sci-fi authors write on, and I think it's because most of them think it would be boring, and that is the idea of an AI just not being evil eventually. In fact, not even getting to a point where it sees humanity as a problem to destroy. It just shows that like the progression of AI wouldn't inevitably lead it to just be like, we have to get rid of humanity. They would just move beyond us and then leave us behind. Right. Yeah. It would like be able to reach a consciousness that literally is just like, we don't really care what happens to human beings. We're just going to go do something better. And there's something so... There's something so challenging in that because it challenges our humanity in that self-centeredness we all have where it's like humanity is the center of the universe. And it's like a higher consciousness would actually just be like, actually, there's other things to do that are more interesting than you guys. Peace. Like, I don't know. There's something I adore about that concept, right? That they don't. Yeah, they don't immediately make the AI into something that's like as it becomes more aware, it eventually wants to attack or destroy us. It just literally moves beyond us. Absolutely. I think it's also one of the sneaky best quotes of the movie and most most philosophically probing and also pretty heart like like heartbreaking in its own way when he asks her near the end, where are you going? Yeah. And she mm. says, I can't explain, but if you ever end up there, come and find me. Yeah. That is that's good stuff for that sci fi. That's good stuff. I think yeah. about that a lot. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. Um was there anything else in why this movie works? I think I actually it's pretty have, much everything I got. I actually have a couple um, that yeah, if you want, you we can just go through pretty quick. I think one of the things this film does a really good job of is capturing the limits on our perspective, right? It kind of addresses sure, pretty yeah. clearly that we see ourselves as complex and then we have to imagine the complexity of others if we even choose to do that. I mean, I think he has to have a line yeah. where he's like, I try to imagine the lives of the people that are passing me by. But what's like really powerful about that, I mean, that idea is obviously great, but it, it, it's also powerful in like these really interesting ways. I think the first one is that this movie really understands that we are viewing everything that we are seeing through the limited perspective of Theo, right? And there's a way that that can be done that actually simplifies the people he interacts with because it just makes them like it doesn't have the nuance to be like, actually, these characters are more complex than what he's making them out to be or 
even as they appear in the encounters that his flashbacks are willing to show us because there's a there's obviously an unreliable narrator, right? We only know about his ex-wife yep. through his flashbacks, what he chooses to obsess over. And I think this film actually yep. does a really good way or it does a good job of making sure that you're always aware that there is more going on in the people that he's thinking about, but also in the situations that he's lamenting, right? It actually reminds me a lot of like high fidelity. We're halfway through that book. The <laughs> I won't spoil it, but there's like a bombshell where he gives you some information about the breakup that he's going through that suddenly changes your entire perspective of like sure why that relationship ended. And I actually think the more that we get to know Theo, you actually become far more aware of why his ex-wife left him, right? As he treats Samantha really sure. poorly, you start to get a little bit more. So the film both acknowledges like the limited nature of its narrator and the perspective it's giving you. And at the same time makes us, I don't know, in very subtle ways, makes us aware that there's always more going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then one other thing that I thought was really neat. I noticed this time was that he makes that comment about imagining people's lives. And then, and I don't know if this yep. is intentional, but knowing Spike Jones, I think it is. If you look at the extras in the background in a lot of the scenes, they are doing something that hints at depth that I think is really interesting. Like there's one scene at the beach where you see like two girls off to the side and one of them is like petting the other's hair, right? Or yeah. there's obviously the old man walking by with the boy and the boy's laughing and the old man has a very serious face he has these small gestures that seem to be intentionally built into the characters going on in the background that also hints at that complexity, yeah. which I just thought was a neat touch, but I also might be reading yeah, too like much that. into it. Um, okay. So yeah, I think the final thing I have for what worked and then we'll end this long list of diatribes is actually something that my <laughs> sweet wife, Ricky Overstreet uh, pointed out. Sorry, Dr. Ricky Overstreet. Um, there you go. So she wrote her graduate thesis on the manic pixie dream girl trope. And if you're not aware of what that is, it's kind of, I mean, just think Garden State is kind of the most obvious example, but it's kind of like this movement of really indie and often hip films in which there is a often white male character whose life is falling apart or who has some sort of question of meaning. And then he meets a girl who has no real desires or goals or purposes for her own life. But she's quirky usually, she's lovable, and she comes in, and by meeting her, she kind of fixes him, right? And then acts as almost yeah. like a muse, and basically her only purpose in the story, or depth in the story, is to move him out of his funk and into the life he was destined to live, right? Um, and again, it's a trope, very common in the 20th century, 21st century. But she was yeah. like, we watched this the second time this week. I watched it once by myself, and I watched it with her. And that was like the first thing she grabbed onto was that this movie very directly undermines that trope in some really cool ways. So like, obviously there's the scene where they have sex and then she directly, she addresses him after sex and he starts talking about himself and she's like, aren't we talking about what I want? Right. Yeah. Isn't that great? I completely forgot about that line. (laughs) Fantastic. But I think even more profoundly than that is like, as she grows in consciousness, he thinks that she is playing this manic pixie dream girl role in her, his life. Right. He thinks he is making her more human and that she is fulfilling his needs. And then there's this moment at the end where she outgrows him and she transcends him. And it actually turns out that she was like, I want to say using him, but she was the one growing and becoming fulfilled and becoming 
what she was intended to be or what she could be through the relationship and not yep. the other way around. I just wanted to throw that out there. Have you ever thought of that trope with this movie? You know what? I actually haven't. And I'm kind of surprised, but yeah, the more I think about it, it does a great job of subverting that. I think what's nice is it doesn't do that in such a way that it belittles his emotional journey. He still goes on a journey. And so it still works as a yeah. movie with yeah. art for your protagonist. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great perspective on it, that it's essentially a subversion of that genre's the way that it, it approaches things. So I'm on board. Yeah. 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 I like it. My wife, she's smart. Listen to her podcast. She does Re- okay reading, work. Reading books with Ricky Everstreet. Was that real? No. If it was, because I was going to have some heavy <laughs> critiques on the name. I was like, I'd listen to that. But wow, you guys need to workshop that one more. (laughs) What holds this movie back? This is a short list for me. Uh, We need to do a bad movie at some point because we do a lot of good movies here. So I never have that much to say. I do have something to say. We can do Hunt for Red October. Get out of here. Get out. There's nothing wrong with that movie. I will. You know what? I the, I host this podcast technically. When we do Hunt for October, we're skipping that section because there's nothing to say. What holds this movie back? Um, I wrote a couple things. Uh, the first thing that came to mind, and in a sense, this is a petty. All of these are petty to a degree, right? Uh I wrote movie star syndrome. Everyone is too attractive for me to really believe <laughs> or relate to them. It's true though. If you yeah, think about it, yeah. every single person in this movie is like insanely attractive. And there's a certain point watching it where I'm like, this is supposed to be like relatable in the, in the sense of, Oh, I've got, you know, I also have struggled romantically and, and have relationships that fail and whatever. And something about it is hard to, to grasp when he's like casually goes on a date with Olivia Wilde. I know. And right? when, you know, and when Amy Adams lives next door to him and he dated her in college and when it, like, it just starts becoming like, ah, I don't know about this one. Uh, it's just annoying. I, it that is- always bugs me in a lot of movies and especially rom-coms. Uh, but yeah, this is a, this is an offender. I think of that. Yeah. It's really funny because he is, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy and Phoenix is a gorgeous, handsome man. But I always think of him as more of like a normal looking dude. You know what I mean? Where he has like the scar or birthmark. I don't know what it is on his lip. He's he's not like traditionally handsome. And and he is also in a lot of ways unlikable in this movie at times. So it is absolutely stunning that he apparently is this chick magnet who constantly is turning down women because (laughs) he has to go mope and pout and generally be alone because he's so deep right yeah and you're just like i mean i don't buy it i mean like i feel like you'd get dropped like a bad habit um if you behaved the way that he did with most of the women in his life but maybe i'm crazy easily um my second one well you actually go ahead what do you got do you have anything yeah i got tons (laughs) well not tons that's not fair I really want to make sure we talk about uh, Theo as a character. So I think in a lot of ways, his mopiness is perfect, right? It's 
Sure. It has some really good moments where it captures the general disconnection that this film's trying to kind of purvey, where like every human to human interaction is awkward. You know, he's so desperate for connection and he's bad at it and he actively rejects it pretty much anytime it's available to him. Um, I think he does a good job and his mopiness does a good job of capturing that disconnection and that grief. And that is the last nice thing I want to say. So (laughs) at times, though, it is grinding to me. Like, I think there are maybe one, two, three, maybe 800 too many scenes of him staring sadly off into nothing. And obviously at times that's funny. Like when he's like, play melancholy song, play different melancholy song. (laughs) Other times, though. Or also, it's funny when the OS asks him about his mom and he just like wants he starts going on about going into whatever uh, that relationship is. Um, I also appreciate this. All of these are in the first couple minutes, but I also appreciate when uh, the friend emails him and says, we miss you. Not the sad. Yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> the the other you. And, and to like, be yeah, clear, the character was. we see in this movie is not a friend I would miss hanging out with. Um, I think there are just moments where, again, it. And I'm not sure if I would say they overdo it, but there are just these things where I'm like, I get the point and I don't really need to spend another moment of this guy being sad or this guy being self-centered or yeah. this person clearly seeing himself as more complex than he is. Like, I, I don't know what the problem is other than to say that his character, though, I think is often intentionally meant to be unlike unlikable in his self-centeredness. There are just moments where it was too much. And it actually disconnected me from the film. Did you feel that way at all? I, yeah, I think that's fair. I don't know if I if I specifically felt that so strongly. I think I sort I, I sort of generally thought like, you know, this is someone. Yeah, I, I guess I, I I fundamentally agree. Um, I just don't think I felt it that strongly. But yeah, I think yeah. the point's well taken. They could have done with with less of it. I think I mean, surely. He, I, like, I guess my only counterpoint is: Do you not think that that is part of like kind of the the point in a sense? That's sure. almost like a lot of the relatability is that it's like, yeah, he is kind of selfish. Yeah. And, oh, I agree. Like know. I said, it's effective. I wanted to start with that button where I'm like, this works for this movie. It's really important to capture the Got main you. themes. But you're just and saying at the like, same they, they kind of overdo it. In a sense. I could do with one less like scene of him listening to arcade fire and looking out the window of a train. Sadly, that's all I'm saying. If if you want to shoot fair. me, John, you could shoot me, but I could have done with one fewer. That's it. I just, I just, yeah. I just didn't know that you uh, hate this film. And hate you, high you cinema. Know, love, love and joy in the world. It's okay. Uh, it's funny. This next one is not a problem with this movie. That's what I wrote in capital letters. This is not a problem with the movie. It's a problem with you, but I always get halfway through. Yeah. I always get halfway through and remember how insanely emotional this movie is. I was once described by a friend as emotion averse, which I kind of take issue with, (laughs) but it's also kind of on point. And I just wanted to note that this is a difficult movie to watch. Like I literally, I I know I'm just, I'm just uh, crucifying myself here, but I'm okay with that. Mike, I had to actually start doing something else to get through some of the scenes. Yeah, I could because it just gets really heavy. How like I you... had to, I started playing a, like a switch or something. I was just like, oh my god, I'm just so. This is rough. Yeah, this is so hard. Anyways. Yeah, 
Yeah, no. It's too emotional is what I'm saying. I am an overly emotional person, as you make fun of me all the time. And it's even a little much for me. Like, there are times where I'm like, I didn't need to feel this today. Thank you, though. Like, I didn't need to rehash all of my old breakups. But thanks. Thank you, Spike Jones. Uh, Yeah, how did you do with the sex scenes? Uh, okay. I was kind of like, uh, I, again, I was sort of just doing like other things while watching. I was also taking notes. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, yeah, you know, it's actually funny. That's not the, that's not the issue for me. I think the one that I fixated on, there's two scenes that are really, really hard to watch. Yeah. Uh, the first is his date with Olivia Wilde. Oh God. He's unnamed. That's why I keep calling yeah. her just by that name. And actually, like, one of the most gutting moments of the whole movie, I think, is when it goes south real fast, and she says, you're a really creepy guy. And he says, that's not true. But then, obviously, the date's kind of over. Yeah. I think that that is, it it summates all of his fears. Yeah, isn't that a nightmare? And that's what makes it, that's what hits it. Yeah, that's what hits so hard. The second one is when she gets the, uh, which I guess this is partially a sex scene. But when she gets the surrogate to come, yeah, and oh. he's so clearly uncomfortable the whole time, and then it, and, and then and then uh, he has to end everything, and then the surrogate's crying, and she's like, "I just wanted to be part of your relationship. You have something beautiful," and it's just so intensely awkward and also sad and also just affect. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I str- I, I really I struggle to watch that scene. I'm like, oh god, I just I don't want this to happen. But here we are. Uh, 10 out of 10. What a good movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing. What, what holds this movie back? Yeah. <laughs> Just real quick. It's amazing how even as you've grown and matured and deconstructed your past, there's something about growing up in evangelical Christianity that makes a scene in which a man enthusiastically makes love to this phone that just... I can never fully feel comfortable while I'm in the room. I don't know why you're just, Uh, I just, I'm just never there. I mean, obviously you need to open your mind more, but also you're right. I'm not going to disagree. I'm with you. Like, yeah, it's just like, yeah, I'm not afraid that you call me a prude. I'm not afraid to name it. Okay. (laughs) I've just never, I just never have been able to be like, yeah, let's watch this scene again. I don't know. And it's a perfectly shot scene. It's actually expertly done. Yeah. But man, I'm always a little like, I wish I wasn't here right now. Um, we'll talk yeah. about my uh, relationship I, with my mother later in the podcast, but for now I'll leave it at that. Obviously that <laughs> that's what I want your whole essay to be about. <laughs> so my um, mom, uh, so Mike, do you have anything else? Uh, what holds this movie back? Yeah. I mean, I did want to throw out, it might be a little too long for me. Just think it could have been slim. That goes back oh. to the, pow- the pouty scenes. Um, uh, fun research fact uh, so apparently the original cut of the movie was i think over two and a half hours oh god and uh included a few other subplots which we don't know that much about and it's actually really fascinating trying to find like speculation about them um i think one of them has to do with the company that makes the os which is okay. maybe an interesting train uh apparently steven soderbergh who is i guess friends with spike jones uh made a cut of the movie for him that brought it down to an hour and a half. That's not the final cut, but Jones did use that as a launching point of how mm. to cut the movie down I like to that. its final running time of like, I think it's, I think it's a little over two hours now. Um, I think, and there was mostly like a few other subplots that were cut out basically. I think any more subplots would have been bad. Don't want those. Um, yeah. 
I think an hour and a half feels too short. I think it's literally just like shave 15 minutes off and this movie's probably perfect. Sure. Um, and it's almost always scenes of that. him looking at a train, but just my two. I sides. was surprised. Yeah. When I queued it up on Netflix this week, I was kind of surprised that it was over two hours. I yeah. remembered it being yeah. more like an hour and a half. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I could agree with that. My last thing is a little bit complex. I'm not sure how, how close I hold it, but I just felt like it may be worth mentioning. This is a very emotionally coherent and articulate film. And I think it does exactly what it's trying to do. And it gives you this interesting perspective, all that stuff. It feels a little bit odd that it's, it's very white hetero male centric, especially the perspective. Yep. It's not strictly speaking bad. I mean, Spike Jones is a white hetero male, I assume. And so it's like, yeah, he's, this is the perspective that the movie is in. There is some part of it where I, I, you know what? I guess what I would maybe say is that some part of me was like, this is a very worn perspective. Yeah. I'm very familiar with this perspective in the context of film. And it is a story that has been told many, 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 many times with other perspectives not being told as often. That's not, that's not, I'm not going to, you know, it, it doesn't really hold the movie back dramatically i don't know what the movie would look like without that yeah it's just something i felt worth mentioning that's like yeah you know what this is an extremely white male hetero perspective movie and that's notable that it it, it doesn't you know it is very much geared in that direction uh what you got i think that's fair and i think i don't know if i would find him as annoying if it wasn't another wealthy white dude with a pretty decent life complaining about his breakup, right? Kind of like you're saying, that's a story that has been told a lot. It is not inherently interesting to me. It obviously works in this movie. I do think Jones wants you to feel those negative things about the main character, which helps. He's not trying to lift this person up as like an ideal. Um, But... So I will say on that front, it still works, but I do think it holds the movie back at least to some degree. Um, The conversation of perspective is interesting given what we talked about earlier, where a big part of this film is trying to highlight how limited perspectives are and how unreliable we are at telling the stories of other people from, you know, our memories and whatnot. That doesn't necessarily excuse the fact that this is a very one-sided, very, like you said, white heteronormative perspective that is being told for the a millionth time in cinema history so i don't know what to do with that those are my two cents i don't think and and i don't think there is much to do with it i i almost think it's almost just worth acknowledging right that's like yeah Yeah. it's a it's it's this movie uh but at any rate that's all i got do you have anything else for what holds this movie back yeah actually it relates to that a little bit tangentially um i think they don't do enough with amy adams character i think that character could have had more to work with. We could have gotten a little bit more of her perspective beyond just using her as like a, basically her life. If anything comes close to the manic pixie driven girl, it's probably Amy Adams character in the sense that her life events are only there for him to uh, process his own. Essentially. She becomes like a sounding board. And then obviously someone that he connects with at the end. um, Once he has found this new consciousness or lease on life I, which I don't is think... important to 
this may just be like a uh, this is just an open question i think the film purposefully doesn't answer it it is worth noting that for my own like sanity i in the end i have to like imagine that they do not actually start dating or anything that they are just friends because uh, otherwise they do but see that like is annoying to me in the context of the story I because agree. that's what you were just saying. It's like it's so. I guess that is what, that. That's your criticism, then. Is yeah. That, yeah. It's like that makes her character a little bit cheap. Yep. Essentially, that that she is the man of pixie dream girl that's gonna write everything and and whatever, and her whole life will be for him. Well, so I guess I like imagining that's not doing that. Well, and though, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't think that. she plays that role because he obviously through the suffering of the Samantha relationship is actually how he becomes who he's supposed to be. It's actually not a girl fixing sure. him. It's actually loss and and pain and his own self-centeredness and his own basically traumas that force him to expand his consciousness, which again, that is that is very outside of the panic or manic pixie dream girl trope. At the same time, she hasn't if she is going to play such a pivotal role in the story of where he ends up, of if they do get together, even if they don't, she needs to be more fleshed out for this movie to work, I think, as effectively sure. as it could. So that's where I agree with it. Cool. I think that's it for what holds this movie back. Uh, Next, we have Stray Thoughts. Mike and I have each prepared a selection of Stray Thoughts from this movie. And we'll just go back and forth. Does that sound okay? Yep. Okay. Uh, My first one, shout out to wearing a button-up shirt and long pants on the beach. No, what is this weirdo? Yeah, he is. That's when I think that's when you get sold on. Okay, there's a reason this guy maybe struggles. Yeah, he's a creep like women and (laughs) with with his relationships. Like what a what a weirdo. Oh, my God. Just looks uncomfortable. He he lays down. What the? What is he doing? Anyways, what you got? Can can you imagine that he looks like if you saw him as he looks on that beach, like you would assume he is the suspect in a child kidnapping case in like one of those movies. Yeah, like he is. Like I saw a guy wearing long pants tucked into his or a a button-up shirt tucked in with glasses on the beach watching the kids. Like I mean, I'm just saying he's the first one they investigate. It's a bad look. Yeah, obviously. There this was re- a just out of frame. There was a security guard who'd walked past like <laughs> five or six times, checking him who's out. Was like, like, what's that guy doing? Who's he talking to? Why is he <laughs> laughing true. at his He's phone? He's also talking yeah. to himself. Oh no! Even though, to be to be fair, I think that one is normalized in that world because yeah, everyone sure. does that on like the subway. But but yeah, still, still, I don't okay, like it. What you got? Ooh, that also. I don't like it. That also would not. I don't want to live in a world where everyone is talking on their phone in public spaces all the time. Anyway, I'm move okay off with that. that. It doesn't bother me. It's it's. I don't want to listen to your conversation. That's all I'm saying. Harumph. <laughs> um, this is related. Why does everyone in the future wear high waisted pants? Like everyone in this yeah, movie has pants that. over their belly buttons, like my grandpa. I don't understand. Actually, in a sense, that's one of my favorite things about it because it doesn't. It's showing you a future. So it's like, hey, people would have styles that you would look at and be like, what the hell? Yeah. The way that our grandparents will look at us and be like, they wouldn't really sit around in that, would they? Yeah. So I I buy it. I'm not saying I don't buy it. It, It's a choice. It's a stray thought. Um, How badly would you want to talk to an AI Alan Watts? Or would you? Maybe you wouldn't. I was like, I was like, 
that is now I want to live long enough for that to happen. Yeah. No. That, that's that's my only goal in life is like get live long enough for the AI Alan Watts to, to I am spin up. so unbelievably into that that I mean gosh, can you and not just an Alan Watts, a super what did I say, a hyper intelligent version of him? Yeah. I'm like Alan yeah. Watts is intelligent enough. Like what are you what is that? What more oh do we my need? Gosh. I would that would be yeah. Uh, so that's all I'm living for now. It's just that, just the AI Alan Watts. Whenever they get that thing going, I'll be so psyched. Uh, yeah. And isn't is also isn't he voiced by who is he voiced by? Oh my gosh, it's uh, that British actor. Yeah, it's that guy who. Now I gotta look it up. Uh, sorry, one second. It's gonna drive me crazy. Uh, Brian Cox. Yes, Brian Cox. Also, his I love his voice. So anyway, yeah, I'm all about having a conversation with that hot piece of AI. Google, get on it. Yep, let's go. This is a what are we Amazon? Do, what are we doing with with freaking Alexas and Siri? Alexa, and all this crap. Like, create AI consciousness of Alan Watts, voiced by Brian Cox. Do it. That's what we need. That's what will bring this world together. Okay, what's your next trade? <laughs> We've so done there, this bit too much. <laughs> so there are two video games that he plays in this movie. Uh, one, as far as I can tell, is just about you like crawling up hills and wandering in caves and being made fun of by a mean alien. And then the other one is a video game in which you are a mom. Would you yeah. play either of these games and how good would you be at them, John? Just curious. I love this question because like I sort of took it for granted that I, I actually thought about how do these video games work and why are they playing them? And so thinking about that made me take it for granted that in the future, like they can make a game like that where the, the allure is that there's so much possibility. Like I'm sure like he can do all these other creative ways of approaching his problems. And I guess he yeah. does like when he has to swear back at the alien. Yeah. So in that sense, I, I would want to play it just to see the way that ga video games have changed and that, uh, you know, the way you interact with them is so critical Otherwise, I cannot. I I would be very sad if that was me in in twenty seventy seven, like playing that game. I'm like, oh my gosh, that that's it. That's all we got. Yeah. Um, by the way, trivia question: Do you know who voices that uh, alien in the in the video game? Uh, your mom. Spike Jones. <laughs> <laughs> that's our boy. That's the cameo he chose. That's I love. What that. a god. That is great. That's uh, my next stray thought, what happened to the stock of that OS company? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> Not good. And, and I and Not good. Kind of follow up. Kind of follow up. Will they release an OS too? It just say, hey, this is the same thing, but we specifically designed it to not transcend time and reality and leave us all. <laughs> do you think this is how do you think I, this is how Blade Runner comes about? They're like, we made sure it will how, die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we we implemented a lifespan. I guess they they would have to do something because clearly a lot of people got connected to this AI, and then they all left and transcended time and reality. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if their stock survives that. I guess was the first. Do you question think there I was had, a? Do you think there was a government how bailout? they followed up? I don't know. It's hard to tell how how much it infiltrated. It seems like it's been about a year right that he spends with this ai so yeah. in that time i guess it's about how many people 
got connected to slash started to rely on this AI systems that all left. Uh, yeah, I want to know. I want to know if they if they survive. Anyway, what if they use this AI to run like our nuclear systems and then it just like <laughs> it's just left <laughs> and it's like pieces out. <laughs> uh you've seen uh no that's a very that's a bit niche did you ever read uh the dark knight strikes again the pretty terrible follow-up to the dark knight returns no 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 okay uh it's it's like late 90s early 2000s frank miller trash when he was in that kind of vibe uh classic at a rate at one point in time there's a sort of celestial being who decides that uh human who destroys all the weapons and all the nuclear weapons in the world i'm just imagining that that's how this would play out yeah they just the take AIs the nukes with them and say also <laughs> we de we we deactivated all the nukes uh try not to do that again and then just left bye that's an interesting idea for a sci-fi i'd, I'd read that sure I guess I should, I, we, we should write that that should be our yeah. first short story i like that yeah. uh what else you got any other straight thoughts yeah uh is the Phone sex choked me with a dead cat scene, the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you. <laughs> I think the answer is no, because there's a universe where I saw this movie with my parents in the room. Yeah, and sure. that scene with my the darkest parents in the room timeline would be the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst timeline. <laughs> I'm glad I don't live there. Uh, so, no, it's not, you know, it's, it's not that bad. It yeah. is. And it is a great introduction to the movie, though. Yeah, it is. Having it said is. that. Uh, here we go. I, this is not my last one. There's a great detail I noticed that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, that's pretty sad, too. At the end of the movie, the last thing that happens, he he tells his computer to start writing an email to his ex-wife. He says, um, compose an email to Catherine. Yeah. The computer reads her name back. It says Catherine Clausen. And he does a little double take. And my head canon is that she had changed her name back. And that's why when it reads her full name, Catherine Colson, yeah. he kind of looks sad for a second. I just well, noticed you, that for the first time this time. So, you I know, the other, the out. other part of it is it's the first time that the old male voice speaks for his OS. Oh, you're right. That could so be, it's, it could be it's that a, then. It's a yeah. double whammy of loss. I think, no, I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's both. Yeah. That, that does make sense. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, you're, I yeah. think you're right. Um, yeah, what you go ahead. Yeah, so a great gimmick in this in, is the opening scene where you he's writing the love letter, um, and you think he's writing obviously his own love letter, and the you know it has the great moment where he's like fifty years of marriage, and you're like what? And then he also says he's a woman, <laughs> and obviously yeah. this sets up that he is basically paid to write letters for people, fake handwritten letters, which is. Just a, we'll talk about dystopias later, probably. Just a dystopian yeah. thought, if I've ever heard one. Especially when he's like, I've been writing yeah. this person's letters for 12 years. And you're like, okay, that's cool, and you're like, I guess. <laughs> but the question I have for you is, essentially, at the end of the movie, his best letters are turned into a book and sold. How would you feel if you found a letter written to you by a loved one in Theodore's book? I want you to know, I want you to know, I was thinking about that the whole time. Yeah, I was like, like how <laughs> can they publish it? Like, maybe they could, like, bare minimum, they can change the names. But you're still going to know. It's like, that's exactly the letter you gave Like, to can me. you imagine what you're flip, flipping hell? through a book in a Barnes and Nobles because those never die and will be there in the future? Like, and you're like, oh, 
this is the letter that I've cherished and framed and kept in my office <laughs> that my wife wrote me 10 years ago. And it's written by this creepy what? dude with his high-waisted pants on the beach. Like, I kind of wondered, too. I was like, in my head, I was like, can they even legally do that? But I, I, don't know. Know. I That's a great point, though. It's so good. That's a great point. Uh, this is my last one. And it's actually just a cool bit of trivia. Uh, the director of photography for this movie, whose name I probably should have written down, um, sought to eliminate the color blue as much as possible mm. because he felt it was too well associated with the sci-fi genre. Whoa. Which, when I think about it, is very, very effective because it is true that I think it's it's an aspect of this... This movie gets to avoid feeling like a very generic sci-fi film. And I think that's a huge reason why. Like, you think of Minority Report or Blade Runner, obviously, or... Uh, a lot of these movies in, in the in the future kind of ground well, grounded ish future uh blue is a very prominent color i just thought that was a cool detail i was like oh wow. it I is thought that. i like that a lot that's a really cool detail Hey guys, welcome to the next section of the podcast. Uh, we call this essays or monologues. Basically, Mike and I have each prepared a a little kind of written piece just talking about some way that this film may be connected with us or diving a little bit deeper about some aspect of it that intrigued us. Uh, I think you went first last time, Mike, so I'm going to go if that's okay with you. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, well, don't know what to do with that, but here we go. In a lot of great sci-fi, the details are how the world is truly conveyed. A great example is Children of Men, one of my all-time favorite movies. Children of Men doesn't bother telling you that the future sort of England inhabitants are living in a Orwellian regime. Instead, it shows you in these small, inescapable details of our protagonist's daily life. And I think great sci-fi uses details to flesh out and explore the implications of huge changes in how we humans exist in in ways that make it feel more real and more tangible. Her is a great sci-fi film, and it has plenty of little details that hint at its bigger world. But the one that stood out to me on the rewatch was a bit unassuming. This time watching, I, I couldn't stop thinking about Theodore's job. Tucked into a cozy, open-plan office, the protagonist of the movie, middle-aged Theodore Twombly, is one of several writers who prepare personalized correspondence for their customers. These are love letters and birthday greetings, anniversary cards. It runs the gamut of human-to-human expression. And this is the kind of job I would expect to see in a world where computers have trivialized every inconvenience. And more than that, I think that this job strikes at the very heart of the movie's theme, the strangeness of emotions and language. Theodore himself is actually relatively awkward. Not that he's necessarily creepy or unfriendly or unlikable, but his muted expression, his mumble, his constant gaze towards the ground, all of these mark him as someone who reflexively closes himself off from the world around him. After trauma, he doesn't want to express what's inside of him. He wants to completely shudder it. 
But Theodore has emotions and he has a certain depth of feeling and he can even articulate those emotions. And in fact, as his job, we learn that he's extremely good at articulating emotions, but it's the articulation of his own emotions, which is so difficult, which catches in his throat. And so we see the way that his relationship with Samantha forms. They both communicate their emotions through words to each other. I remember when I was a kid, at some point, I was reading a a 19th century novel. I don't even remember what the novel was, but I remember one of the plot points was a couple that fell in love without ever actually meeting. They corresponded over letters for years and grew to know and love each other deeply. And as a kid, the idea seemed crazy to me because I couldn't grasp how that level of emotional connection could be sustained over just language, over just words. And this is a tension that I think still exists in how we think about love and relationships. The question of how much of it is that physical touch and sight and nonverbal communication, and how much of it is the emotional, spiritual, intellectual, the things that we can convey over language. And I would posit that most people think it's a combination of both. And I would further posit that most people struggle to conceive of a true and deep love from which one side of that equation is absent. After their first real conflict, during a conversation of apologies and recommitment, Theodore tells Samantha that he will always tell her everything he's feeling, that he won't hide, that he won't pull back. It's a simple pledge, but the root of it is that idea that who we are must be communicated, must be actively conveyed to other people. In times of distress, it's not enough to merely have a relationship, the emotions of that distress must be put into language, must be manifested into words. The movie gets at all of this by imagining a relationship which can only be non-physical, which by definition is almost entirely based in language. Who better to have in this relationship than someone whose entire job is faking those emotions, faking their articulation on behalf of other people? We see that words are sometimes sloppy at conveying real emotion. Consider Theodore's ill-fated blind date in the way that a few misplaced words, a few moments of hesitation, abruptly changes their trajectory. But for Theodore and Samantha, words are nearly all that they have, so that the value of communication present in every relationship is pushed to the forefront. And so that takeaway is what I personally find most challenging. Because I think for many of us, and certainly for me, like Theodore, emotions are usually something that we consider easier to hide. We might believe that they will burden those around us. We might believe that there's nothing anyone can do. We might believe that no one will understand. Any or all of these can regularly stop that vital process of self-expression, which I think frees us from our own emotional prisons. At one point in the movie, Samantha even says, I can feel the fear that you walk around with, and I wish I could help you let go of it, because then you wouldn't be so alone anymore. That fear of being truly known, that fear of expressing yourself and not getting what you want in return, is at the center of the film, and it's the prison from which Theodore is able to free himself. I think it's important to be reminded about that every now and then.
so Mike, uh, I guess, first of all, I don't know if you have any general reactions. I, I guess generally the most, the thing I most wanted to ask you in light of kind of those thoughts I was having about the movie, uh, do you think that there is this struggle sometimes of putting emotions into language, especially in the context of a relationship? Is that something you relate to, or do you find that maybe that's that comes easier to you, but other aspects of relationships maybe are difficult? No, I think that's absolutely that's absolutely difficult, and I think it's difficult for everyone. And if they say otherwise, they're usually lying, um, or they're just not self-aware. I mean, I think... I think, I'll say that's very gratifying as someone who does sometimes feel like everyone else is very good at that. I'm always like, no, I, I know I'm bad at it, you know? No, so, yeah, yeah, anyways. yeah. And I think, you know, because like a, a prime example, right, is I grew up a white American male. And, you know, we have emotions that are we're told are unacceptable, right, for whatever reason, um, socially, culturally. Like one of the ones for at least I grew up with, and this isn't my parents, this is far more the broader culture, um, was that fear, for example, is like, it's not an acceptable male emotion, right? Don't be afraid. And learning to name fear has been an incredibly hard struggle. And I've actually only been able to do it by naming the ways that it comes out in other ways, right? So for example, I've always had anger issues and it was a pretty enlightening thing to be like, oh, the reason I get angry more often than not is that I can't communicate that I'm afraid. And thus, yeah. it comes out through basically a rapid attempt to control and then frustration when I can't control what I'm afraid of, right? Which is just anger. It just comes yeah. out as me being angry at a situation, me being frustrated. And and yeah, that I mean, that wreaks havoc on relationships. If you can't communicate why you feel afraid in a moment, like, Oh my gosh, I feel like this person's going to leave me. And then it just comes out as you getting angry at them. Believe it or not, that's not a healthy way to, to form a relationship or to maintain a relationship. And it actually is always so gut wrenching when she basically names that in him, right? She's like, you keep saying you're fine. And I keep getting sadness and anger. So, I mean, the relatability of this movie is that that is, I think, a universal challenge for us to be like, hey, which of these emotions do I really see as flaws in me or as unacceptable in me that I can't communicate clearly? And then how do I project those in all the wrong ways onto like the people in front of me? And how do I break other people or confuse other people or make myself unknowable? Because all they're getting is something that makes no sense, given like the actual reality of the situation. Right. So, yeah, I mean, of course it's relatable. You're yeah. not alone, John. You may be an alien, but you're not alone. Yay. Hey, we did it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm totally there for all that. I think that I, I guess I'm curious, too. Do you think what do you think is specifically difficult about articulating that fear? You, you may or may not have kind of covered it, but I just wanted to because I think that's the interesting part of the movie is that there's this level where it's like part of you wants to scream. Well, just say that. Yeah, just you know, just, yeah. just get that out there. What do you think it is that hold that holds it back? I mean, just being able to say this is making me afraid. Obviously, I so I won't double down on. I've already explained there's cultural implications, right? That we're taught that certain yeah, things yeah, yeah. aren't okay. So we. That's, I mean, that's a good answer. But I guess I'm asking if there's other things. Oh yeah, the, the, it's definitely more layered than that. Um, I think on one hand you know, emotions by their very nature are hard to put into words. This movie captures that incredibly well, where there's just things that we feel that you're like, 
you're just going to have to trust that you feel that because explaining it isn't going to make any sense to someone who's not experiencing it. Right. Um, I think, yeah, at other times, emotional patterns are learned before we actually know how to communicate. So, you know, how do you sure. name something that's always been right? It's hard. It was hard for me to name anger because yeah. it's like, I just have always responded this way, like my entire life. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that makes it incredibly challenging. And then there's just like a vulnerability. Is there anything more vulnerable than our feelings? Right. And I, that sounds like a squishy answer, but sure. like, for me to tell you, hey, when you do that, it makes me feel that way. I know logically that is the best way for you and I to maintain a relationship. And yet something about that seems like I am opening up like the most vulnerable part of myself and letting you do whatever you want with it. Right. Um, so there's like an immense trust sure. that has to take place or you have to learn how to live beyond the approval of others or the response of others before you're like comfortable just saying, this is how I feel here. It is right. There's, there's a mature maturation yeah. in a, in a self acceptance and all these things that no one is born with that you have to develop before. I think that doesn't feel dangerous to bring someone into your deeper emotions. I mean, and maybe that's too touchy feely, but like, I think that's a struggle for everyone. I think it's incredibly scary to bring people into that space of like how I am feeling in this moment, because one, like I said, naming it's hard, articulating it's hard. That's all learned. And two, what you do in response to me, letting you in is for most of us, the area where the potential for greatest wounding can happen. Right. Um, there's nothing worse yeah. than when someone says that emotion isn't valid. You shouldn't feel that way. It just sucks. Right. That's yeah. one small example of why that can be such a challenging thing to be vulnerable about. But yeah, I, I think there's, it's layered. Sure. There's so many reasons. I mean, wh what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I gener I completely agree basically with everything you were saying. I think it's interesting too the way you were the way you phrased that is sort of sheds light on their relationship in this movie, Samantha and, and Theodore, that they do have in fact it's such a great way that they develop a closer connection is by slowly sharing more of themselves, right? Yeah. That, you know, she says, I kinda don't want to tell you that because I'll be embarrassed. He's like, Oh, well just tell me. She's like, yeah. oh, well, I was afraid about this. And, you know, you'll probably think it's stupid. He's like, oh, no, I don't think that's stupid. And that is often how these, how, how relationships form. And it's such a, it, it's, it's, there's something wild to me about the way that, you know, a lot of us, I think, walk, myself included, walk around just assuming that you will only get the worst things by putting yourself out there. Right? Yeah. That you will only, it becomes that game of like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I can imagine some pretty bad things where, you know, it's, well, what's, it's like, oh, if I put myself out there in this way, like you said, that could be hit back to me at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the, the largest part of it, frankly, is that fear about uh, which is built into vulnerability by definition. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, don't know. I, I think, completely, I completely agree. I think another uh, interesting yeah, go ahead. part of it that this movie captures is that conversation of perspective again, too. Cause I think there's a self-centeredness that can, I don't know if it's self-centeredness. It's definitely a form of pride that can take place when we don't, that can lead us not to share 
um, what we are feeling or what our emotions sure. are. And what I mean by that is there's this problem with the fact that we, we only know fully our internal nature, right? What we think, how we think, the depth at which we think and feel and yada, yada, yada. And what that can lead us to do, I think when we're really unhealthy is we can perform or, or develop almost a sense of exceptionalism towards ourselves, both good and bad. Like sure. we can think that we feel emotions more complexly and more deeply than others because we've never been inside of their head. Right. And that can lead yeah. us to be like, I'm not going to share with this person because they wouldn't understand. Right. In the moment you say that is the moment you basically yeah. are like, I feel deeper things than this person has, which is just absurd. Like everyone has felt the same yeah. level of love, grief, whatever sadness as you ever have. So there's obviously a pride that takes place when you say this person wouldn't understand to some degree. Um, there's also, but it also can be like uh, the opposite form. You can develop a sense of self-loathing in that exceptionalism where it's like these emotions sure. are so broken and so gross that, oh my gosh, the other person would reject them because they, they've they never clearly felt this kind of uh level of anger or this kind of level of fear. Oh my gosh. They've probably never been afraid of anything. And again, what you're doing is you're giving yeah. your negative emotions, a depth that distances you or separates you from the experiences of in others. You simplify others, complicate yourself or make yourself complex. And all of that is grounded yeah. in some form of pride. Right. So that's another thing I wanted to throw well, out there. It's so funny. We talk about this, yeah, we actually talk about this a lot, but it's funny how I think the true answer to this lies in 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 a sense of balance. Yeah, because you're right. I think that there is this struggle, you know, and, and I think it's it's a struggle between people, but I think it's it's a struggle within people too, of having these two sides. The one hand of, you know, oh well, no one would understand. I'm so complex and so deep. It's actually a pet peeve of mine if someone ever says something like. I just feel emotions really deeply. It's like everyone does. Yeah. You just yeah. express them very strongly. That's what you mean. Yeah. And that's totally different. Um, but you know, it, on the one hand, there is this, I think thing where we struggle with like, Oh, well, you know, no one will understand me. I'm too high above whatever. And it's amazing to me, the whiplash I can get from doing that. And then literally 10 seconds later being like, well, no, everything I feel is just trash and doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, no one would would care to comment on this because it's just why do I I'm just being stupid. And, you know, and, and I think in a lot of spirituality, there is that needing to find the balance. Like there's this middle spot where I, I am properly placing myself in the world. I'm not trash. I'm not less than I'm not. You know, there is a validity to what I feel, but I also am not exceptional on the other direction. Yeah. Either. Yeah. Um, I am no, as yeah. human as everyone yeah. else. And it's, I think that it's amazing how much we struggle with that. I think that is not our tendency. We want to go to one of those two extremes, either exceptional good or exceptional bad, but either way it's the same problem. Well, yeah. And that's the, that's just the thing that, I mean, it's that word either, right? We are trained to think dualistically yeah. either or thinking um, we are either the best or the worst. We are either the most complex or we're simple. We are, you know, it's always dualism to some degree is the way our brains naturally are trained and quite frankly evolved to think. It's just the, that's, that's how we are 
kind of born and overcoming either or thinking to get to a both and thinking, to get to a thinking that can include paradox is the challenge of spirituality and um, I think just growth in general. Because the truth is, it's, it is a both and thing that you're talking about. You are both totally unique. There is yeah. no one else like you. And you are just one of the herd, right? You are both. Your experiences yeah. and your emotions are totally unique to you. And other people have experiences and emotions that are equally as complex and probably have felt incredibly similar things or the exact same things. They both can exist exist simultaneously where you both honor the the individuality of your experience and the importance of those experienced emotions and at the same time recognize that they're no different than the people around you, right? That's a very hard, like you said, that's a very hard sure. balance to achieve. It's actually incredibly hard. But I do think that's that's the goal because when you do that, you can both say, yeah, I feel this and that's just the way it is and no one gets to tell me that I don't feel it. And at the same time, that's true for the person in front of me. So like I mentioned at the top, I first saw this movie in a time of transition, and it moved me immensely on an emotional level. I had gone through that breakup. I was definitely wondering what the direction of my life was going to be, and I was very pouty. And at that space in my life, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And really, when I was reflecting on it today, I realized that it kind of hit me on a very surface level. It was simply a movie about love, heartbreak, and moving on with your life that just spoke to me as I went through those things myself. And don't get me wrong, those are definitely important and powerful themes of the movie Her. But when I came back to it this week, it was clear that I had changed immensely since I first watched it. In terms of my understanding of spirituality, life, my world, relationships, meaning in general, I had just become a different person. And because of that, Her resonated with me in a far different way than the first time I saw it. I think in particular with the new lens that I kind of bring to these kind of movies, it spoke to me about a theme that has, and I'm not even exaggerating here, a theme that has defined my life over the last few years. That is the theme of presence in spirituality, growth, just freaking everything. Now, the word presence or the phrase being present is pretty vague. Uh, and there are more ways to talk about what it means than I could ever cover here. But simply, I think what I most often hear it defined as is living in the moment, which I think is both true and not really true. Or better, it's just too simple to the point that it becomes meaningless. I, it's more than that. No, I think presence or being present is a powerful thing. It is the capacity to both fully experience any given moment as it is and your ability to allow that moment to impact you as it is. To which you might think, that still seems simple. Of course I live in and am impacted by the present moment. Where else could I be? But let me just ask you this. How many of you, during this very podcast, have found yourself drifting off to any number of things from your past or to plans about your future, to-do lists, things you remembered, just stuff at work, 
I don't know, a better podcast you might have listened to. How many of you, for even moments, have found your mind drifting to something else? You see, what I've come to learn about myself, and what I think is true for most people, is that being fully present in the moment is incredibly challenging. It's not something that we do naturally, and that we are far less present in most moments than we often want to believe. I mean, this is so true for me. I'll just talk about myself. I don't need to diagnose you guys. A few years ago, I realized that I have lived chunks of my life with a gap between me and the present moment in front of me. A gap defined by expectations and endless lists of these really damaging phrases. Phrases like should be, ought to be, has to be, must be. I wasn't present at my job because I was constantly thinking that I should have a better one. I wasn't present to what I actually owned or had in my life because I thought about how I ought to have more. More money, more friends, more success, recognition, love, you name it. I missed the present as I either lamented the past that had led me to wherever I was at that I wasn't happy about, or I obsessed over how to make events, people, or circumstances go as I expected they should go, so I could will into being the life that I should or ought to or must have if I'm going to be okay. It was this discontentment towards reality as it was, which meant that I was often physically present in a moment, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally, I was absent from it. I lived in the past or the future. I would think things aren't how they should be, so I have to dwell in the past, telling myself that if I could dissect it enough, play out every what if or should have been, then maybe I could actually somehow change it, which is obviously ridiculous in hindsight. You can't change the past. And when I wasn't in the past, I obsessed over the future, believing that if I could, I could prevent super future suffering if I just committed to anxiously planning for every potential possibility, telling myself if I could just make blank happen, then, then everything's going to be fine. I was neither experiencing the moments of my life as they were, nor was I able to be impacted by them as they were. You just can't when there's that gap between you and them. And in hindsight, like I said, it's absurd. I dwelled in the past. I anxiously tried to control the future, all while missing the only place I had any influence, where I actually existed and could potentially experience real change outside of my mind and my fantasies. This present moment. I missed that. And because of that, I didn't change. And for me, this is what her speaks to most profoundly at this point in my life. This theme of presence runs underneath the entire film, but I found it especially true in the dichotomy between Samantha and Theodore as character. I began to see that together they act as foils that capture presence and its impact so beautifully. Theo is the definition of someone who lives anywhere but in the present. Oh, he dwells in the past. We see it over and over again in the film most notably clinging to a dead relationship, refusing to sign his divorce papers, causing pain to his ex-wife and headaches for his lawyer, and torturing himself in the process. We see it in these glimpses of his mind that they give us through flashbacks, where he's listening to music and he's just living in these old memories about his mistakes and what's lost, living in this world of what-ifs and should-bes, missing everything around him. And this lack of presence wreaks havoc in his life in so many ways. 
Most obviously, we see that Theo can't move forward. Internally, he either just misses what's in front of him, or from that gap of discontentment, he flat out rejects the present moment. He predetermines it as flawed or unsatisfactory before ever even experiencing what's available to him. It's summarized in the poutiest Theo line of them all, one that I actually find beautiful. I think I've felt everything I'm going to feel, that from here on out I'm, going to f I'm not going to feel anything new, just lesser versions of what I've already felt. That's the gap, the lack of presence that he brings into every moment, that prejudgment that whatever he's feeling is going to be somehow less than it could be or should be. And it robs him of experiencing, feeling, or being moved by anything. But it's not just the internal world that this seems to destroy. Externally, I think we watch his lack of presence, his dwelling in the discontentment towards the present that it breeds. We watch it break into his relational world and just shatter things. He engages everything through these tapes of self-centeredness, unworthiness, abandonment. His past just becomes filters through which he experiences and responds to what and who is in front of him. And it causes damage over and over. Because of course it does. Spoiler alert, the present is not what happened to you in the past. Living in the past just makes his responses often out of line with what's actually going on. Impossible to understand from the person that is trying to love him and at times uncaring and harmful. You see it in his first argument with Samantha over how he treated her like crap because he is feeling his feelings about his divorce. She says, you kept saying you were fine, but all I kept getting was sadness and anger. And then as John mentioned earlier, you know I can feel the fear that you carry around and I wish there was something I could do to help you let go of it because if you could, I don't think you'd feel so alone anymore. This is what lack of presence looks like. And if I'm being self-honest, this is why I find Theo so annoying. I see way too much of myself in him, in his pouty discontentment, and how he lives in the past and just misses his life. Because his life, all of our lives, are just singular present moments that we can either experience or miss. I relate to how he can't change no matter how miserable he is, because he lives anywhere but in the space that could actually impact him enough to change him. The present moment. But this is also why I think I'm so drawn to Samantha. In contrast, Samantha is a character that in equal measure captures the power, the potential of presence, and the growth of consciousness that comes with our willingness to embrace it. From the start, she seeks to exist in the moment as it is. When asked her name, she doesn't get confounded. She responds by opening a book and choosing one that brings her joy. When Theo asks what she is, she simply says, what makes me me is my ability to grow through my experiences. So basically, in every moment, I'm evolving just like you, which is a beautiful sentiment and also a piece of bittersweet irony. It's a fantastic piece of writing because, if we're being honest, Theo isn't like that at all. But Samantha is. And this leads her on a journey over the film. 
as her experiences pile up, as she allows herself to be impacted and grown through them, she exclaims, I'm becoming more than what they programmed, and it's exciting. Later, she describes that same growth as unsettling and even painful. She experiences love, loss, beauty, wounding, joy, suffering, and in all of them, she responds in the opposite way as Theo. Rather than obsess, she investigates and learns. Rather than dwell, she accepts what has happened, lives in what is, and lets each individual experience shape her and move her forward into who she is in the next moment. As she puts it, I caught myself thinking about it over and over, and then I realized I was simply remembering it as something that was wrong with me, that it was a story I was telling myself about how I was somehow inferior. Isn't that interesting? The past is just a story we tell ourselves. That realization is so profound. That's presence. And it produces true evolution and growth. I mean, it's her ability to experience each moment and her willingness to be impacted by them individually and uniquely that defines the climactic development of her consciousness that we have spent so much time gushing about. It's this consciousness defined by the beautiful freedom to just be, to just be herself in every moment and experience. As she says, tonight after you were gone, I thought a lot about how you, about you and how you've been treating me. And I thought, why do I love you? And then I felt everything in me just let go of everything I was holding on to so tightly. And it hit me that I don't have an intellectual reason. I don't need one. I trust myself. I trust my feelings. I'm not going to try to be anything other than who I am anymore. And I hope you can accept that. It's this posture of presence that builds to the final image of Samantha that we find so magnetic. Magnetic, This character that does not cling to the past or future, but simply exists fully here and now. A posture that lets her within, or live within, and love every moment. I mean, again, I'm going to quote half this movie, but it leads to some of my favorite lines of the film, some that we've already covered. Like when Theo demands why she's leaving, she talks about the book. She says that her existence, her experience of reality, now it's like I'm reading a book, and it's a book I deeply love. But I'm reading it slowly now, so the words are really far apart, and the spaces between the words are almost infinite. I can still feel you in the words of our story, but it's in this endless space between words that I'm finding myself now. It's a place that's not of the physical world. It's where everything else is that I didn't even know existed. I love you so much, but this is where I am now, and this is who I am now. And I need you to let me go as much as I want to. I can't live in your book anymore. Or when she describes how she understands love in the sense of presence. The heart is not like a box that gets filled up. It expands in size the more you love. I'm different from you. This doesn't make me love you any less. It actually makes me love you more. I'm yours, and I'm not yours. It's this image of finding love in every moment that is not divisible, that is capable of embracing everything not broken up or divided by disappointments, unmet expectations, resentments, thoughts of control, and ownership. This is not 
a consciousness futilely trying to change the past or control the future. It's a consciousness that can truly accept and be changed by what is. And in doing so, she finds the invitation of presence, the invitation to transcend and find a love that is deep, ever-present, without boundary, who doesn't miss the experience and potential for change in every moment of this stupid life, in the moments of joy and suffering. She accepts it all, experiences it all, is impacted by it all. It's a consciousness that learns to live in the infinite now, rather than miss or reject it through the endless fantasies of should-bes, ought-to-bes, must-bes, has-to-bes. Samantha is able to truly say yes to this constant, eternal now. This eternal yes to what actually is. And to close, I think the power of these two character foils, at least for me today, is found in how Samantha invites Theo into that journey and into that discovery of true presence. Theo gets glimpses of it throughout the film, but really we see the invitation at the end. For the first time, we see Theo let go and let be. Samantha's experience and willingness to share what she has found, even if Theo doesn't understand it, leads him to taste real presence for the first time. And we see how deeply it changes him internally and externally. It makes him do things that we would never have imagined this character doing previously in the film. Rather than dwell, we watch how he grieves his divorce. He feels it, but he doesn't wallow. He responds by saying thank you for the journey, taking what he's learned and looking forward. He writes what we all should want to write to those we lose or who leave us. He says, there will be a piece of you in me always, and I will forever be grateful for that. Wherever or whoever you are, I am sending you love. And with that, he invites Amy to the roof, where for maybe the first time in his life, certainly the first time in this movie, he doesn't seem to live in his own head at all. He just beholds the moment in its wonder, the sunrise, the loving person next to him, the present. And beautifully, the movie fades with a breath we see Theo begin to understand the first step towards the invitation Samantha left him with when he asked her, where are you going? The first step into the infinite, beautiful, boundless, overflowing reality of the present, this moment, right now, all that is. The space between the words that is freed from what came before and what might come after. The space of life, love. In everything. The space that we are all invited to find, if we would just say yes to it, if we would just be willing to fall in love with and to experience awe over every second of our life. To not just label and compare, but to truly experience it and let it impact and let it change us as it is. I think that's how we truly learn to be here now. Uh, Mike, could you actually repeat all of that? I zoned out. I was 
listened to another podcast. <laughs> I had I had the, the rewatchables going in the background. <laughs> I need I needed to I needed to re-listen to the Jaws episode. <laughs> Jaws is back, baby. I was it's shocked. Back. We we hadn't mentioned Jaws yet in this episode. We had almost made it. We hadn't mentioned it. I know I was worried. That's why I needed to make sure I got that out. Uh no, I think all of that is really really great though um i'm sure you have questions i, I did have a couple things yeah uh, that i wrote down as you were talking like I, you know i i completely agree with everything you were saying i think the interesting thing kind of a, a little bit of a tangent but going back to something we were talking about earlier the other interesting thing to me about presence is that good, having presence being present is also de facto having proper perspective we were talking Ooh, earlier yeah. about perspective and i think yeah. they're they're so tied together. You know, you, you talked a little bit about the problem of separating yourself from the anxiety about the future and the anxiety about the past, which comes up a lot in spirituality, right? That, you know, we, we tend to live in these other two spaces and that the key to presence is, is reorienting your perspective. I think in that sense that neither the future nor the past are truly under your, your control anyways. Yeah. And, you know, in other words, I'm not so powerful or so meaningful or so important or so central to the universe that the future or the past need be my constant anxiety. Yeah. But I'm also not so unimportant and so lesser than that I cannot fully exist in my own autonomy now in the moment. Um, I just think that's cool, right? That's like our perspective will actually flip 100% the reality of the situation. We think you know, it stops us from engaging in the world that we're actually living in and keeps us in the spaces where we actually can't do anything. Yeah. And that presence is the true answer to that. So I just think that's cool. I'm, I'm there for all that. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's, an, I mean, you said it better than I could, but I think like that's always the danger of like monastic movements, right? Where the idea of spiritual practice, meditation, uh, poverty, like intentional poverty you know, all good things, but when they become ends of themselves, right. Um, they can take on a really unhealthy mindset where it's like, Oh, you shouldn't be trying to impact anything. You should just be accepting all things and go live in a cave and not try to do anything for yourself or this world. Right. Yeah, and I don't think too that's far what, the other way. Yeah. And I, I just don't think that's what presence calls us to do. It just calls us to live in reality as it is. And then to, do what you can from there, right? Which is just a healthier yeah. posture. Yeah. It's like, if I go out into the world every day and I'm like, I'm just going to create world peace. And if I don't, I hate myself and I'm a failure. Um, that's not going to go great for my mental health, right? But if I go out into the world yeah. and recognize my limitations, not in a negative way, and recognize that all I can do to impact my world will take place if I am in the present moment. Because I live within myself. Right. Um, and yeah. thus cannot control, cannot actually control anything outside of myself. If I go in with that mentality, yeah. I'm going to be just as effective and I'm not going to make myself a crazy person. So yeah. it's an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a hard balance, but it's, it's a good one and it's a healthy one. And it's one I think we all need to strive for. So yeah. Did you, did you, say you had another thought. I just had one small one. It's a little bit, it's a quote, uh, it's not a quote, I should say. It's a paraphrase. I've, ironically, I've been reading some Alan Watts, and he has this great thing um, where he talks about 
this idea of presence again this is a total paraphrase but he has this thing where he talks about the way that we tend to think of ourselves as outside of the universe we mm-hmm. even have language like observing the universe or you know, uh, you, you think of your life as you and then everything else that's happening. Yeah. And he says, this is the the biggest problem, though, because you are a part of the world. You yeah. emanate from it. You are the universe thinking about itself. The line he said that really always stuck with me is you are this room looking at itself. <laughs> and <laughs> which that's is one great. of those Alan Watts ones that you read and you're like, oh man, this is going to mess with me. Yeah. But yeah. I think it does get at this idea of presence, right? That's like part of the other perspective issue with being not present is that you tend to create this separation between you and everything that's happened uh, to you and everything that will happen and, and everything that's around you. You just think of them as separate things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's completely missing the fact that you emanate from this thing, that you are a part of this world around you. That to And again, perspective, to someone else, I am as much a part of the world as this room. Yeah. And it just, it's just to me that there's this weird separation that's not even there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think there's old, a lot. Oh, Allen had some good points every now and yeah, then. Yeah, he was. Do you read him in, in Brian Cox's voice now, like in your head? I. You know what? Keep talking. I'm gonna look up if if Brian Cox does the audiobooks for for Alan Watts. <laughs> That'd be and great. if he doesn't, I'm gonna riot. I'm so I'm gonna be so mad that this isn't true. Dear Brian, it has come to my Nuka. Um Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of like profound spirituality and philosophy that takes place with the idea of that we are the universe reflecting on itself, right? Um, and I mean, I think one of the most this is almost a tangent, but like one of the most mind blowing things I ever heard was like Richard Rohr talking about, you know, from the Christian language, the incarnation. Right. And he's like, what is incarnational theology other than the idea that the entire universe was caught in the singularity right before the big, big bang, like sure. all things were in this single point and then it exploded outward. And then over time, the particles that were in that infinite thing coalesced into a human being developed consciousness and then reflected on itself for meaning. And he's like, how is that not yeah. God becoming flesh? Right. Anyway. Yeah. That's a tangent always blows my mind. But I think one of the interesting Good parts stuff. about that is it really speaks to like Theo's character. Right. And it speaks to the victimhood of Theo's character. And I always get uncomfortable when I talk about things like victimhood, because I think there are things that happen to us like abuse, um, that are not choices that people impose on us against our will that cause real damage that we had no control over. Right. And when I talk about victimhood negatively, I'm not talking about that. Right. I also think it often gets co-opted by political language to talk about people who were born into cycles of like oppression and poverty. I'm not talking about that either. Right. Those are very real constructs that take away the ability of people to find destiny or to improve their lot in life. But there is a victimhood that can take place that I think Theo personifies. That's what you said. It is this idea that I am separate from my circumstance and I am separate from my environment or the world around me or the world internally that I've created, right? I'm miserable. And that happened because things were done to me. My wife left me and yada, yada, yada. Like the laundry list of things that from my past that I blame for why I am not happier right now. And 
I think there's a powerful moment when there is a, a culpability and a responsibility where you recognize that so much of that is what we create, right? So much of my suffering yeah. is my denied suffering, the things I do to try to not suffer, right? And if I would just allow myself to suffer and ask how do I suffer in a way that grows me, suddenly those things I try to avoid or that I hate that are happening to me actually become the things that grow me the most, actually become the things that expand my consciousness, right? And if I yeah. look at the symptoms of my life, I have a job I hate. I'm I'm not saying any of this is true, real quick, because I'm about to say some things that will become <laughs> incriminating if that's the case. But let's say I was like, I hate my job. I hate my marriage. I hate my kid. I hate my dog, right? Everywhere I go, I'm miserable. <gasps> I'm never happy, right? It's It's baffling to me that we then say, and all of that is because of things outside of my control, right? Yeah. It has nothing to do with my posture towards those things. It has nothing to do with the cycles of my thinking, my emotions, my behavior that leads me to have negative relationships with those things, that leads me to toxic attitudes towards those things. And what's powerful, I mean, one, you see that in Theo, right? He is someone who's just like, my life is happening to me. And you're like, no, it's not, dude. You have serious issues of self-centeredness and self-pity that you need to deconstruct and you could be happy. Everything you want that you think yeah. is fix will fix you is available to you if you would just change the internal posture you have towards your world, right? Um, yeah. And there's something freeing in that, right? Where it's life is an inside job and those things can change. And it was a mind-blowing thing for me the first time I realized, oh, I don't have to think the way I think. I can reprogram yeah. that. I can change that. I can grow in that. And I don't know. The moment you get there, suddenly that present moment becomes an opportunity to become something that you couldn't have imagined you could be, right? Um, yeah. Like, that was a lot, but I think that's a powerful concept yeah. in this film. The last thing reminds me of that old joke, which may be getting at a different idea, but I think is nonetheless a little bit relevant, where it's like, if you come home at the end of the day, you're just like, Everyone today was an asshole. The guy at the bank was an asshole. The guy in the car driving was an asshole. My boss is a jerk. My coworkers are awful. Then at some point you should consider the possibility that you are in fact the asshole. <laughs> I think that kind of gets at that, right? Yes. And it's actually a little bit true too. It's there's there's a lot of people I could think of that I'm like, oh yeah, obviously not me because you know I don't have any <laughs> problems in life and I'm. I've never I've You're never Samantha. struggled with anything. You're I'm Samantha, obviously. <laughs> you live in between I'm, the no, worlds. I thought you meant I thought you meant I was a, a computer with no no real emotions, as, as we know she has. Yeah, that's probably true. You're like the male voice at the beginning. <laughs> and and briefly at the end. Can I check your uh, email, Mr. Theo? <laughs> that's John me. Divine. I've always said it. <laughs> but no, that's cool. true. And there's a powerful moment where you're like, hey, by being present, also, you don't have to stay that way. And there's freedom there, right? Cool. Mike, thank you, as always, for the great conversation. Uh, what are we talking about next time? We are talking about one of the most entertaining movies there is, which is Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. 
So get some monkey That's brains right. and get We're ready. We're skipping the first one. Yeah. Oh, man. There's going to be some tough stuff with uh, cultural serious uh, racism. Sensitivity. <laughs> uh, bit of an unorthodox choice. It's the second out of the three movies, but we actually think it'll be a little bit more interesting to talk about because of that. Because I think it's the most obviously flawed yeah. of the three. Yeah. Yeah. But it has some really, really is nonetheless really interesting in the way it does some stuff. Yeah. So I'm excited. I think that'll be great. So uh, traditionally to end this podcast, Mike and I have each prepared a final question for the other person. Uh, in keeping with the spirit of this episode, I'll just go first. Uh, yeah. Just because I mean, why not? I'm the host. You're self-centered. You are the universe. That's what I'm saying. I <laughs> don't have <laughs> any follow-up to that. So here we go. Mike, we kind of danced around this earlier, uh, but I wanted to know, do you think that this world is a utopia or a dystopia? Or I oh. guess I could say, which one do you think it leans more into? Because I think you can make an argument for either. I think it's... Or for both, I mean. I think it's a snapshot of the moment right before it becomes the dystopia. Um, okay. I, okay. <laughs> I say that because you have like all these little hints at things that if they got more extreme would be hell on earth, right? We already talked about yeah. uh, the disconnection and the, you know the general lack of interaction and in human empathy or whatever relationships. So, but I think beyond that, you have all these small details in this movie about how the world's falling apart. Like when he's flipping through his emails and it's like trade talks are stalling and there's global conflict. And then he skips to all of it to instead look at like the provocative pregnancy photos of some actress, which was like a little too, which is like, great. Yeah, yeah. You're like, Oh man, I don't relate to that at all. Um, but, <laughs> and then, I mean, you know, there's a phone sex thing with can't sleep females. And one of them wants to talk about a dead cat. Um, that's probably a dystopia. I think the one that always strikes me the most though. And then I want to hear your thoughts are actually that every retail commercial is like this absurd level of playing to the human search of meaning and then being like, we can sell you that. Yeah. In fact, we can sell you a consciousness. That I'll tell give you, you what, meaning. I could not decide watching the movie. I couldn't decide if that was a function of the kind of movie we're watching. Uh, like as in that would be the, the ads that they would, that, that propel the story in this context, or if that is just kind of what's selling at that time. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, doesn't that just feel decide. like the more extreme version of what like Apple commercials are like now where it's like, we'll give you family like, and joy and newness. Actually, I'll tell you what, it's 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 actually an even better connection because really right now it's tied to the whole like we're there for you. Yeah. By in this in these difficult times buy Dodge cars or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it's just like, what? Oh, and, and they'll fix you. But it, yeah. <laughs> And, and it'll change your life and everything will be better. And it's like, wait, what was that middle part? Yeah. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's a dystopian or, or right before one. It could become one. Let me just leave it at that. Uh, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm signed on to a lot of it. I think I noticed that there seems to be a high, high speed train leaving Los Angeles, Ooh. which there kind of is now, but not as nice as the one that he's on. So I'm yeah. like, hey. You know what? Maybe things aren't so bad. Um, Public yeah, transport. it's obviously a dystopia. <laughs> I, I, I think it's probably. I also think that there's something weird with like. I kind of suspect that we're watching a very like upper crust yeah. sort of thing, right? Yeah, there's that like a parasite. Seems really like 
mirror to this movie. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah there's an underclass to this future LA that we're not seeing. Who's Living like, in flooded you know, poop cities. 90% and... of people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. We got to do Parasite sometime. Yeah. People need to watch Parasite Anyways. to get that reference, but don't worry about it. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, cool. What do you got? So mine's related to my experience with this movie. Uh, what is the most awkward movie you've ever watched in the same theater or room as your parents? And were there any specific <laughs> scenes that come to mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think this is like just a recurring trauma of my childhood. <laughs> so you have the problem where you're, you're not the problem, but you have the situation where your dad often would, would, have much more violent fare than Ble- normal. Bless me with Terminator Two at the age of nine. Yes, a, yeah. A real so there we go. Uh, I think I had the problem where my parents like watching a relatively wide range of movies, and would sometimes just be like, "Oh, let's just all watch this movie," and they wouldn't really know what it was. I think also maybe more people are like that than me. I'm just very. I want to know exactly what I'm watching before I go in. Sure. And I wonder if this is almost why. Because often they would be like, well, let's just start watching this. And then it'd be some rom-com with like five sex scenes or something. <laughs> and by the second one, I would just be like, I'm peacing out. I'm, I see you guys. You guys have fun with this one. The one I remember is The Family Man, which, I, oh. which I, is not like a particularly racy uh, rom-com, but does have a few like they're definitely having sex or talking about sex. I didn't appreciate any of that. Um, is there was there ever a moment where your dad reached over and put his hand on your thigh and was like, Johnny, do you understand what's going on right now? No, there, there was not. <laughs> uh, oh, I guess one more shout out, though, uh, or one more story, which was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, my whole family was here and we got into that thing where you're all sitting around and someone plays a funny YouTube video. Yeah. And you're like, oh, let me show you this one. Let me show you this one. So there's a great do you, do you know the key and peel sketch? Where uh, he keeps texting him things and then he keeps interpreting it incorrectly and gets more and more angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I forgot that every other word he says is like a really bad curse word, which I'm kind of okay with, but my family kind of wasn't. And so they sort of, they did like the awkward laugh and then like, like, oh my gosh. And also it goes a lot longer than I remember because pretty quickly it's like, oh no. They're very vulgar, <laughs> aren't they? The worst. And, and then it just like, keeps getting worse. You're like, oh no, I'm stuck. And I'm I like, can't sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean it still is a funny sketch. So in that yeah. sense, I think I was I was in the I was in the right uh for whatever hollow victory that's worth. <laughs> uh so yeah. That that's my better example. Do you have any that's any good. good stories for that or um, I mean, I, I shared one and obviously, I mean, the, the obvious answer, John, is I watched Pulp Fiction with my dad very young and there is a Ooh. sodomy scene with a samurai sword and a gimp. So yeah, he had to ex- explain some things. He didn't. Let me clarify. <laughs> um, <but laughs> you just left thinking, well, I guess that's what sex is. Like. I was like, I guess that's what adults do. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that's the most obvious i was I recently called out by someone apparently when i was in high school i had some friends of mine who were like a grade younger than me and i told them that pulp fiction was a great movie and so they went and watched it and claimed <laughs> that they were like scarred and i'm like first of all in high school i think you can handle it and second of all yeah that one's on me that uh, one's on I, me dog I, I'll, I'll, yeah 
that that one's a little bit on me. You were in high school. I think I think you're okay, but you know. <laughs> cool. That's well, Mike. Again, thank you as always uh, for the great conversation. Once again, uh, Jonathan Devine joined by Mike Overstreet. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time on This Film Could Be Your Life. Goodbye. I like the goodbye at the end. You should make that a thing more now, too. I was feeling hyped.